Okay, <laughs> we are live. Uh, Georgie, how are you, sir? Thank you for joining I'm me. I'm fine. <laughs> Hello to everyone. Uh, just a, a quick note, uh, please let me know how my volume is. I've done a lot to try to improve the quality of my chronically low volume here, but I need you guys to kind of give me some feedback to make sure that it is indeed okay and I can turn it up or down, but we're just going to kind of roll with it and, and continue the show and then I'll, I'll keep my eye on the chat. Uh, but let me switch over to this. So uh, if you're new, consider subscribing. We do live streams every other week, and this has just been a total joy. So I want to sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank Georgie for joining me because I just don't think it would be as fun uh, uh, just without you. So I sincerely appreciate it, Georgie, for all your time. And nothing is being exchanged between us. You're just joining me, and it's mutually beneficial. So I sincerely appreciate it. Yep. Uh, All Super Chats are donated to Mr. Raymond Pete. And I sent him $156, uh, the total amount in my AdSense. And then I forwarded that to Steph, the moderator, who is amazing, just so nobody to accuse me of any funny business. And uh, Ray, in, in characteristic fashion, just didn't say anything. So I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he appreciated the money. And also, I did a screenshot of all the people and their comments of the Super Chats. And so uh, it wasn't like, I think he understood that. Uh, and I, I gave him an explanation for what was happening and why I was sending him money and things. So uh, I'm sure, yeah. So I, 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 I think that's amazing. So again, thank you to the super chat contributors because your guys are just like handing money to Ray. Uh, okay. And a common thing I've been receiving uh, emails or comments is that people, some people are generally lost on the content that we're talking about. And so I would encourage anybody that felt that way to go on this channel and look back at the Generative Energy Podcast, which Georgie and I have done just uh, many episodes talking about different topics of a bioenergetic point of view. Uh, and very soon, like last time, we'll, we'll give a little elevator pitch for the bioenergetic point of view about health. And of course, uh, there are more resources at, uh, it's. I think this is a link to a Twitter that I had made, but it links to that. Ray Pete forum wiki, which people have compiled his emails, which I think is like a great resource for anybody that is interested in Ray's point of view. Uh, cause I, he talks about so many different things in that wiki. I just think it's very valuable. And, uh, we, for anybody that's new, we've been giving away, uh, uh, Georgie has been very gracious offering a bottle of Tokovit, uh, a, a vitamin E product that I think is kind of unparalleled in its quality uh, and George, do you want to give a little ele- elevator pitch for Tokovit? <laughs> sure. It's uh, basically it's supposed to mimic the original vitamin E that uh, uh, Dr. Pete has been using for his dissertation thesis. And uh, he mentioned in several articles and people have emailed him about it. So uh, um, I guess back in the day, back in up until like the six, 19, 1960s, vitamin E w- was extracted from wheat germ oil. And it basically was a, a, a mixture of mixed tocopherols. Uh, with with uh, basically it's high on the alpha isomer, um, about 50%. And then in addition to that, it had some like very long chain saturated fatty acid alcohols, uh, collectively known as polyclosinol. So it's basically Tokovi that we have right now that we're selling is 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 the mixed tocopherol mixture with high high on the alpha isomer and uh, has a basically uh, polyclosinols in the proportion that they exist in the uh, in the raw wheat germal, all the other oils have been removed. So that's basically it. And, and uh, just to uh, extend it a little bit more, 
One of the reasons vitamin E is useful is because we're all inundated with the polyunsaturated fatty acids and vitamin E to a certain degree protects from their, uh, their lipid peroxidation and the prostaglandins. Uh, and so it's kind of a natural defense uh, and in super, super physiological amounts, like an amount a person wouldn't normally probably experience in their nutrition, it's useful because we're in an unnatural environment loading up our tissues with these polyunsaturated fats. Yeah, and it's also um, – it, it happens to be an estrogen receptor, quote-unquote antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are also surrounded by all of these endocrine disruptors um, and especially ones such as BPA, BPS, and, and many of the other – like like um, zearlinone, which is a known one as well. All of these are estrogen receptor agonists. Um, so they bind – they basically get into your fat tissue and they stay there for a very long time and exert really potent estrogenic effects. And there is some evidence showing that vitamin E can actually displace them or at the very least negate to a great degree some of their negative effects on the uh, acting as estrogen, basically. So vitamin E is acting as the estrogen antagonist. Uh, sweet. And okay, so the winner was David Butterworth. <laughs> and I just throw the URL of our last episode into a random comment picker. And the first one that comes up is uh, is what I pick. So his comment was uh, best one yet in my humble estimation. Guys, thanks and have a good weekend. And I'm not I'm not like choosing these; they're just randomly being picked. So David Butterworth, please get in contact uh, with me, and then I'll forward your address and things to Georgie, so he doesn't have to uh, think about it. Um, right. Oh, David Butterworth is actually here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. You're a lucky lucky day, David. Uh, so thank you for that. And let's get, uh, oh, and we're continuing to do this giveaway. So, uh, all you have to do is like the live stream, leave a comment and subscribe to the channel and we'll do the same thing, uh, next week. So I appreciate it guys. Let me get out of this. Okay. Quit that. Okay, is there anything before we're going to jump into Georgie's articles on heyda.me if you want to follow along? Georgie, is there anything you want to get uh, talk about before we jump into them? Um, I don't know if you want to tell them, like, I'm also willing to throw in, like, a bottle of Estrovan and Energen because that's what people seem to like those as well. So maybe it's, like, three bottles instead of one. Do you want to do three different winners? Yes, yes, okay. three different winners, yes. Okay, so, okay, so he has just expanded it to three <laughs> winners. Georgie is extremely gracious. So thank you for that, Georgie. And um, yeah, I'll pick three different winners next time. Thank you, Georgie. Okay. So idealabsdc.com, hateit.me. Uh, okay, let's get into it. Oh, you know, we forgot the elevator pitch. So why is why is what we're talking about different than low carb? Why is it different than veganism? Why, uh, like what di- what's the different in, uh, difference in perspective? So the difference basically comes down to stress. So ultimately when your body is functioning well and when it's well fed, it prefers to oxidize glucose um, especially for your brain, and then uh, when you when when you're under stress, clearly evolutionarily speaking, you, you when you run out of glycogen, when you run out of glucose, and you don't have food around, you start tapping into your fat reserves. It just so happens that basically, um, the, when you begin oxidizing fat, um, it, it is a it is a powerful systemic stress signal, um, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Really, we're trying to keep the body in a state where it preferentially oxidizes glucose. So when you start oxidizing fat. Even if it's the saturated fat, to a lot like basically, uh, it's a lot less dangerous. But even when you're oxidizing saturated fat, the whole process of ketosis really shifts the body towards a reductive state, um, and uh, the 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 metabolic theory of health claims that 
most of the chronic degenerative disease that we know are, are due to a buildup of free electrons. And this is basically what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to um, expedite as much as possible the process of these electrons flowing from food towards oxygen and generating as much carbon dioxide as possible. It just so happens that the glucose is optimal for all of these things. Well, well, fat, not so much, and especially if, you, if you're in the modern society and you're eating like the bad kind of fats, then, then you all kind, uh, you know, all hell breaks loose because not only getting, you know, not only you're getting into a reductive state, but these fats are easily peroxidizable. They create all kinds of toxic byproducts. Um, they also inflammatory precursors of the inflammatory mediators, and perhaps, and last but not least, because of their unsaturatedness, they actually have independently a very unique and pervasive negative signaling function, and they mimic very closely estrogen. And, and, and other hormones such as prolactin uh, and even serotonin in, in their functionality, even without them getting metabolized. Uh, somebody forwarded me a tweet, to a, the link to a paper by a, a, a ketosis advocate, and they were saying, like, look, the ketosis shifted the redox balance towards NAD plus and away from NADH in the brain. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. That's not really like the way I understand it. So I opened up the paper and went through the details of like the the drink that they were given. I think they might have had Alzheimer's, but it was like a medium chain triglyceride drink. And then like fifth I might I might be a little off on the details, uh, but it was like fifty percent was carbohydrate. Wow. So that's the low low carb. Huh? <laughs> that was the ketogenic option. Oh, and I was awesome. like, oh my God. But you hit on something very central and it's it's like kind of a nerdy concept, but I think it's important for understanding where Ray is coming from, that redox balance, yeah. and again, pulling the electrons through the cell. And then when the oxygen isn't available, and that's mainly mediated by carbon dioxide, which is produced under the the, the um, umbrella of good thyroid function, or if you live at altitude or whatever, the electrons essentially become jammed uh, or backed up within the cell, and then they start kind of uh, having these harmful reactions within the yeah. cell. Yeah. And, and, you know, a buildup of free, these electrons have to be used for something. So in a, in a relatively able organism, uh, if, if these electrons are not accepted by the terminal acceptor oxygen, right, they're going to be used. I mean, the body says, oh, my God, I'm getting these, all these extra electrons. What can I do with them? So the emergency mechanism is to start synthesizing fat, right? But if you, if you cannot muster up that response, then, it, then you're in a really poor shape because then you start getting the uncontrolled proliferation, which is really what cancer is. Um, and it's not a coincidence that many people, years before they developed cancer, they actually gained weight initially uh, before the cancer kicked in, and then they started rapidly losing it because of the cachexia. So, so actually, if you're eating a lot of food and you're gaining weight, that's uh, ironically the, the obesity paradox. That's probably less bad than if you're eating a ton and you and you're losing weight, right? So you don't want to be rapidly r rapidly losing weight, especially subcutaneous fat. That's a very bad sign. Um, so yeah, I could I could keep going with you on this, but uh, I should probably move on to the articles. Okay, so the first thing you have here is the coming ice age. Um, yes, and and Ray and I talked about this a little bit on this podcast episode. I have it pulled up here, but it's calcium phosphate authoritarianism, eugenics, uh, and CIA spymaster Alan Dulles. But do you want to talk about this article? And then I have some like interesting quotes that I think are probably related uh, that I can chime in with. 
Yeah, I was blown away. I found this article on Hacker News. Um, this is like a forum that I still frequent. For, you know, I, in a in a previous life, I was an IT specialist, <laughs> <laughs> a hacker basically. So anyway, so uh, I was blown away completely because if you, this is first of all Harper's Magazine, mm-hmm. which is pretty pretty established. I guess it's like probably second only to the Atlantic, or even more respected in the Atlantic. And this is an article from 1958. Believe it or not, mm-hmm. so as early as 1958, and and uh, th- th- there was it was pretty established, and to my knowledge, to this day hasn't been falsified. It's simply be conveniently forgotten. So uh, the article is actually uh, is based on the work of two really highly respected scientists out of Columbia University in New York, and what they did is they did a lot of fossil work. Uh, one of them was a geologist, the other one was a physicist, and basically they f- they they discovered that. Um, about a million years ago, what happened is that uh, the the poles, the magnetic poles of Earth changed because the Earth is basically like a core, liquid core, and there is there's the there's the crust on top of it, mm-hmm. and it can rotate, right? It doesn't happen very fast, but it can rotate. So what happens is that when the crust rotates, then the under underneath the crust, the magnetic poles they don't change, right? But they can you can basically have the magnetic pole. Uh, be under a different port point of the surface of the crust, right? Mm-hmm. So up up until about a million years ago, the, the the magnetic north pole was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and what happened is that where, wherever the magnetic pole is, uh, you're getting a drop in temperature. But when it when it's in open ocean, the ocean dissipates all of that you know low temperature because the ocean always has these currents moving, and basically like uh, it has enough of a warm current to dissipate that cold. But about a million years ago, the north magnetic pole moved under uh, basically the point where it is now, which is in the middle of the small Arctic, relatively speaking, small Arctic Ocean in the north. And that ocean is surrounded most is almost entirely surrounded by land. Now, of course, there is there, there is a there is a passage there between Greenland and Iceland and um, and Norway, right? And and many people think of that as like, oh, that's that's a pretty large passage. You can't really say that the Arctic Ocean is is landlocked. It is well. It's almost is because apparently the depth of that passage, which is pretty pretty large, I think it's like a thousand miles, mm-hmm. is is apparently is no more than three hundred feet. Mm-hmm. So so you're getting a situation where this is almost like a like an isolated salty lake, and it doesn't get much of an exchange with the rest of the oceans. So what happens is that when it, because the North Pole is there now, the 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 cold that happens as a result of this North Pole, it cannot get dissipated, right? So you're getting so so you, so basically initially what happens is you you're starting to get a lot of snow um, from the Arctic Ocean and then the snow starts to uh, I'm sorry the, the the evaporation from the Arctic Ocean the moisture uh, because it's it, when you're in the northern latitudes that gets converted to snow so the snow starts falling um, you know basically on the continents around this Arctic Ocean which means northern America northern Europe and I guess northern Asia part of it right mm-hmm. so over time. This this moisture that, that evaporates from the Arctic, the, so the Arctic levels drop, while the, uh, the snow which which gets deposited on the northern portions of the continents it builds up. So it starts to form glaciers, and as that continues, the levels of basically the the world oceans drop. So you're getting so basically the Arctic Ocean gets completely separated from the rest of the like basically. So so I guess what. Uh, what you have right now, this 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 passage between Greenland and Norway, it becomes a dry land. So you have you have a you have a you know lake that's sitting over the North Pole. So when this happens, basically, uh, so that so, uh, so this means that basically when this lake gets completely isolated from the from the oceans, which are warmer, then it starts to freeze, right? And then when it starts to freeze, then the snows are no longer happening, 
and now the glaciers that have formed on land no longer receive support like a, by additional snow. Mm-hmm. So then you have the, the basically the Arctic Ocean frozen, and you have glaciers on land, which are now st- slowly starting to melt, right? So as they as they start to melt, right, they, then they start they start draining into the world oceans, and then the level of those oceans starts to rise, right? So eventually, and apparently that's that's the point we're at right now. The Arctic, uh, basically, the Arctic is still almost completely frozen, but all the glaciers are gone, and now the the world oceans are intermingling with the Arctic oceans, mm-hmm. uh, with the Arctic Ocean, and because they're warmer, they're starting to melt that snow, right? And when you when when they melt that 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 ice polar cap there, the, the ice cap, then they basically we're going to start getting those the, the this evaporate evaporation of the moisture. And then the snows are going to start falling again, and this whole cycle repeats apparently every eleven thousand years. And they publish these scientists; they publish their their research in many respected journals. And if you look at the article, and I've actually fought, I, I did some research, it, their 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 work kind of dries out after the mid the mid seventies, and it's not really clear what happened to them. Uh, I don't know. If, I don't even know if they're still alive. But what I do know is that there has been no concerted like uh, um, uh, falsification or retraction of their research it just sort of sort of gets dropped like society kind of kind of like suddenly forgets about it and then we're starting starting to get these publications that start to call the start 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 to claim there is global warming right and what these scientists are saying yeah you're gonna see a period of warming right but that's preceding the the next the next basically the beginning of the next ice age well don't forget that it's a consensus strategy <laughs> <laughs> we all voted. This is what happened, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a great quote. I think it's by Michael Crichton, and he's like, "There's no such thing as consensus in science. Like, if 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 one guy anywhere around the world just like happens to be right, and he has the evidence to to prove it, or it's verifiable, like that, it doesn't matter if uh, what is the number, like ninety four percent. It has nothing to do with what science is. But, yeah. um, well, I have a quote that opens things up a little bit. And I'm not an expert on this. People know about this much more than I do. But this is a 1993 quote by the Club of Rome, which is one of those NGOs, I think. And they say, in searching for a common enemy against whom we can unite, we came up with the idea that pollution, the threat of global warming, water shortages, famine, and the like would fit the bill. Uh, Oh, and that's it. I think I I didn't put the quote in, but they, they said like, the dot 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 the enemy therefore is humanity itself and so like the idea decrease the population right that's what they're saying yeah yeah and then uh james corbett has done like a really great two-part documentary and it's how big oil conquered the world and then why big oil conquered the world and he really eloquently demonstrates how like the oligarch people like the people pilfering the earth for a long period of time, uh, like Standard Oil and Co., they they maneuvered into the green movement. Oddly enough, and yeah. then and it's so perverted because those people are putting out the message that uh, you lonely like peons are ruining the earth, <laughs> and therefore <laughs> should like uh, like basically kill yourself or not have right. any kids or whatever. Right. Right. Uh, and, and you like low income families are the problem. When in reality, those people have been like destroying the earth uh, for long, long generations of time. So, and one, sorry for ranting, but the one other thing I wanted to say is 
Ray was talking about how people in the 1940s believed that a new ice age was approaching. And I yeah. often think like, what, what would I think about some event that ha- we don't have to name any specific events, but what would I think about the event if I hadn't lived through it? You know, you'd have like a completely different point of view. You'd only know what was like generally in the news or people were talking about. And, and yeah, it's like f- for Ray being as old as he is, it's kind of interesting to get his perspective of uh, being born in 1936 and actually remembering when there was a change from the coming ice age to global warming. So, right. I mean, I mean, not to say, oh, if a person is older, they're right, but it does give you some unique perspective about what's going on. Well, it just looks like uh, the powers that be selectively chose the portion of that research that these two Columbia professors did is and took it in whatever fits their agenda, right? So if their agenda is, you know, let's let's keep the population under control or let's get people to agree to drastic measures, which really means, you know, giving up liberties and, you know, and basically agreeing to, to you know, sub, substandard food, substandard living conditions. If you want them to agree to any of these things, you basically take the part that's really the scary one and, and basically say, oh, if we don't do anything within, I don't know, 30, 40 years then the you know half of the earth will be submerged underwater and all the cities will be gone. And that's actually they they do say that in the research like the, the that Harper's article as well. It just but they didn't say fifty years. They said several thousand, right? And then they also said that that because their theory is basically like it seems to be so well formed and it hadn't been falsified, they thought they had a pretty pretty good roadmap and the world governments had like a you know, a ton of time to think about like what 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 needs to happen. They even they even, um, basically they have another paper in which they basically describe what needs to be done to save Washington and New York from 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 these rising waters, and they propose a system of levees similar to New Orleans, right? So so even in you know back in the 1950s, work was well underway at least scientifically to prepare for this because they thought you know it's not 50 years, it's probably we're basically it's going to take the next 75 to 100 years before we even see the first beginning of non-melting snows in like northern latitudes like Canada and maybe Wisconsin and Minnesota in states like that and we're not there yet and we're basically like barely you know 50 years later so and and before this really starts to be to become a problem if you look at their graph and the projections you you have about 2 300 more years before things start getting really nasty. So you don't have to die in order to save the world simply because, you know, the world probably wouldn't care. That's not going to change anything, right, by, by killing half of the population. I mean, I think the, main, the main message here is that it's not so much human activity. It's the earth has been undergoing these changes for the last million years, and it's a cycle that repeats every 11,000 years. So, so basically the message needs to be two-pronged, two right? One is this is a cycle. Two – Let's talk about the real issue, which is what what do you, what are you guys trying to cover up <laughs> by blaming the the poor people and like and, and the climate change? What exactly is really what do you uh, what have you done? <laughs> is the question really? Um, because usually when you start raising the alarm so much, something really terrible has happened, and, and you're probably just using this as a cover up. That's usually how how uh, politics operates. Uh, well, not to go too f- long on this, but it it parallels the Paul Ehrlich, isn't that the guy, the population boom guy? And yeah. he and he has like how the the global warming stuff hasn't panned out. Like their estimations have been like wildly inaccurate. Similarly, the popul the overpopulation of the planet has been like they'll say like oh x amount of people and and there'll be too many people on the earth. And they've been saying that since the seventies over and over and over again. 
And yeah. I, I know some close friends who like really believe that. So it's, it's, it's really disturbing that, uh, um, yeah, so I'll just read one more quote. Uh, this one's from Maurice Strong, who is like the founder of the UN Environmental, the UNEP, which is like strongly intertwined with all the green movement, depopulation stuff. And he says, um, isn't the the only hope for the planet that the industrialized civilizations collapse? Isn't our isn't it our responsibility to bring that about? <laughs> wow. This guy is not like a fringe character. And so you can find like really scary quotes by some of these types of people. Yeah, I'm wondering if, if they're mentally ill or, or, or they're puppets of like of, of bigger interests. Or both. Uh, or both, yes, yes, both. Uh, okay, so next article here. You have serotonin excess, not dopamine deficiency, maybe the cause of Parkinson's. And do you want to give like a little backup of maybe somebody's not familiar with the your your point your specific point of view of what serotonin, like the function of it is? Yeah, serotonin is, is a very, very ancient hormone. I mean, it's a, it's a neurotransmitter. It's not a hormone. And and it has this inverse relationship with dopamine. So, um, you know, uh, in clinical studies and people who work in the field, biochemists, it's very well known. It's not it's no secret that serotonin is not the happiness hormone. It really isn't. I mean, it's basically the, it's known as the hormone of hibernation, the hormone of aggression, the hormone of territoriality, or, or the neuros, I, should, I should say the neurotransmitter. Um, it's the neurotransmitter that basically, like, y- y- you can take it and by injecting, like, really peaceful creatures, you can turn them into zombified freaks that are really aggressive to even their own kind. Um, so it's 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 got a lot of, I mean, it most of most of its its effects are really um, are helpful only to an organism when the organism is under attack, when the organism is is famished, when the organism really needs to fight fight for its survival. But that's not the picture that's being painted in the in the popular press. The, in the popular press, you're being told that without serotonin, essentially, you will kill yourself. You you commit suicide, uh, usually usually from depression. And the whole narrative stems from from work in the 1960s when um, the U.S. government did some studies and realized that people who had been using LSD and LSD is largely known to oppose serotonin uh, and promote dopamine, they became extremely anti-authoritarian. They developed this 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 uh, this tenacious independence of of opinion. They weren't. They basically they stopped listening to quote unquote experts. I mean, everybody is familiar with the hippie movement and its anti-war attitude, but it really it it, it was much larger than that. It was much bigger. And and truly, like the Western governments were concerned that this that if this continues unchecked, these people can actually topple the government simply because they stopped caring about the government. They were largely self-sufficient. Yes, they did a lot of drugs, but the more the, the scarier part for the governments was that these people realized they don't really need anybody to be happy except each other, um, and and they start the government started funding studies. Most almost all of them came out of the military industrial complex and said, look, LSD is making these people berserk. It's making them insane. They don't care about society. They don't care about family anymore. They don't care about anything that we normal quote unquote people care about. So if LSD, which is a dopamine agonist and serotonin antagonist, more or less. If that's what LSD does, then promoting serotonin, like basically if LSD is making people insane, then serotonin should be making people sane and normal and, and agreeable and whatnot. And and that was the narrative. Even though there weren't any studies done that, that basically used human subjects and, and had them treated with serotonin. So the, the society took the government on uh, by their word, right, and basically on their word, and, and, and somehow the narrative became that serotonin is – the go-to hormone for happiness and pretty much anything good that can happen to you. 
while in biochemical clinical circles, serotonin is known as a really um, um, unhealthy component of, well, I shouldn't say unhealthy, but it's uh, when it's elevated, when you promote its, its effects, you basically, you're, you're triggering the, the, uh, one of the primary fibrotic mechanisms of the body. You're lowering metabolism, probably above all, especially in the brain. I think uh, I posted a study which showed that even a brief increase of brain serotonin drops ATP levels by 30%. And any drop in ATP levels anywhere is dangerous, but especially in the brain, it's been shown that you can actually become temporarily insane. I forgot if it was Abraham Hofer or Linus Pauling or 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 or, or Celia who actually said that the reason between normality and insanity what was like three grains of thyroid or something like that. <laughs> and, and the reason uh, and, and even Barnes, Barnes, yeah, even Barnes knew that it relates to energy, right? So basically, like if if you deprive the brain of energy, and you can see a temporary insanity in a really drunk person when when ATP levels really drop, like the belligerent drunk is nothing more than a person whose ATP levels in the brain have dropped. And the psychotic homicidal violent drunk or a drug addict is a person who, whose ATP levels in the brain are dangerously low to the point of this person, you know, collapsing into a coma, right? Um, so anyway, so basically serotonin, you can think of serotonin as the primary break on metabolism, as the primary break on higher cognitive function, everything that makes you human, and dopamine being the exact opposite. So um, Parkinson's disease is a disease that for ever since it was first coined, it was thought to arise from a, a deficiency of dopamine due to the death of specific dopaminergic neurons in the substantia nigra, which is a portion of the brain. Um, and, and the treatment to this day, the approved treatment for Parkinson, so Parkinson's disease has very, very unique symptoms, mostly related to tremors and unstable gait. And in later stages, such as Robin Williams, who had Lewis body dementia, you start getting demented as well because uh, basically this, this they thought this chronic lack of dopamine really um, you know, can cause more than gait abnormalities, despite the fact that dopamine isn't known to cause anything more than gait abnormalities. Anyway, so so you can you get these really uh, Parkinson is a chronic neurodegenerative condition. It has no cure, and the only maintenance therapy currently available consists of giving people L-dopa, mm-hmm. which is the precursor to dopamine. But this therapy, first of all, right off the bat, it works in only about 20% of people, and even in in those, it stops working after a while. Mm-hmm. But the you know medicine is at a loss. They say we don't know what's causing Parkinson, and we you know up up until you know recently up until I guess the study, um, and even now if you talk to a doctor they'll tell you that Parkinson is a is a deficiency of dopamine disease. That's why you're getting the tremors. That's why you're getting. But here's the thing: as we as we know that anything that anything that lowers dopamine typically results in elevation of prolactin. But Parkinson patients are known for having high prolactin. They don't. They're not known for having gynecomastia or like libido issues or anything else related to a true dopamine deficiency. But that, that, is, that is dismissed. I've actually talked to, to neuroendocrinologists, and they're saying that the way you get around this is that this is only happening in the brain, right? Somehow this, this dopamine deficiency is, is, is brain-specific. It doesn't affect any other portion of the body. Mm-hmm. But there are drugs that, that actually target dopamine receptors only in the brain, and if you give dopamine antagonists that targets the brain, you're still getting hyperprolactinemia. You're still getting libido issues. You're still getting fertility issues. And practicing patients are not, ne- not usually known to have these. Anyways, long story short, about a year ago, I posted a study on the forum, probably even two years ago, which showed that dementia, the Alzheimer's dementia, is actually driven by serotonin excess. And, and the, the way this was reported in the popular press was really diabolical, really nefarious. They actually said that serotonin deficiency, serotonin deficiency is, is what causes 
uh, uh, Alzheimer's disease. But if you re- if you look at the actual study, it wasn't serotonin deficiency. It was a deficiency of the serotonin transporter protein known as SERT, S-E-R-T. Mm-hmm. That is the protein that deactivates serotonin. So if you have a, if you have a deficiency of SERT, you're going to have an excess of extracellular serotonin. The SERT protein is the exact protein that the SSRI drugs target. They inhibit. So in other words, having a deficiency of SERT is the same as if you took a heavy dose of an SSRI drug. That's how these work. In other words, a, 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 an actual excess of extracellular serotonin was found to be a possible cause of dementia slash Alzheimer's. And now this study comes along, and it was reported the exact same way in the popular press. Oh, my God. Um, a, a drop of serotonin, a deficiency of serotonin causes excuse me, causes Parkinson's disease. No, I looked at the study, and it was the exact same thing. It was, it was by different authors. And actually, I emailed the authors because I got really, really infuriated. I'm like, why would you? Because even, even the authors in the popular press article, because they got interviewed, they said it was a dysfunction of the serotonin system. And I got like, well, what a cheap way to, why don't you just say it's not a, yes, technically it's true. It's a dysfunction of the serotonin system. But if it was something related to dopamine or thyroid or testosterone, you have no problem saying a deficiency of something, right? Or an excess of something. Why dance around? Why beat around the bush so much? So I emailed, uh, uh, basically, I sent a mass email to all of the authors of the study. And then only one of them responded. I think she, <laughs> like the girl is like a PhD student who worked on the study. And she basically said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I actually, I can't provide much information because um, uh, I wasn't that, I wasn't involved in the drafting of the final version. But yes, you are correct. The deficiency, we did find a deficiency of CERT. And yes, that would indicate um, uh, an excess of extracellular serotonin. She's like, I don't know why. She's like, when when they interviewed us, we, she's like, uh, she, she herself and some of the other coworkers, she's like, we were pretty explicit that this means serotonin excess. She's like, I don't know why this got, why this thing got left out in the final version of the interview. But as you can see, like the final version of the interview only has like one or two sentences from the lead, from the principal investigator. Nothing else was was published. And that guy hasn't responded to me yet. I sent him two emails and I can I know that he's read them because I send them with a like a like a, a delivery <laughs> receipt and a read receipt and he's not responding. So I don't know. Maybe I'll call him next week and I'll be like, "Why don't you tell people the truth?" Okay, like who who paid you <laughs> to use these political words? Like it's clear, pretty obvious what your study found. Long story short, just as I said in the dementia study, it looks like and and uh, something else. Like so, it has been known for about 150 years now that excessive serotonin causes tremors. Excessive serotonin causes uncontrollable twitching. So this should have been a clue from the very beginning that serotonin is involved somehow in Parkinson's disease. Dopamine deficiency doesn't usually doesn't cause tremors. Dopamine deficiency usually usually doesn't cause twitching. Um, anyways, but uh, um, I think in in one of the studies they use a serotonin antagonist to actually correct the pathology. The first study they posted on Alzheimer's. And if it's possible to do it in Alzheimer's, I don't see why it wouldn't be possible in, in, in Parkinson as well. So all these drugs that are sold as dopamine agonists and, and being told to work on Parkinson by being dopaminergic, maybe the real mechanism of action is that they're actually inhibiting serotonin synthesis. All dopamine, dopamine and all dopamine agonists are inhibitors of the enzyme tryptophan hydroxylase. So maybe that's the real mechanism of action, and that's why they work better then the dopamine precursor L-DOPA, which, as I said, works only in 20% right off the bat and, and actually within a year kind of stops working even for the patients where it did work. 
So Parkinson is not a, a, a disease of dopamine deficiency. I would agree with Pete, who once said that, according to him, Parkinson's disease is basically premature aging of the brain, and serotonin is known to actually, just like cortisol, you can produce most of the symptoms of, of premature aging by injecting animals with either higher dosage cortisol or high dosage serotonin. Did you catch that? You might actually posted it, but the taking LSD or um, likely decreasing serotonin led to like a more synchronized re- like the different regions of the brain were more synchronized. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, and and how how well they're coordinated basically um, uh, it, uh, it correlates with, with how conscious you are. So anesthesia, they found out that anesthesia works. It doesn't work by stopping brain cell activity. It somehow disrupts the coordination. So basically mm-hmm. the, the consciousness is apparently is a quorum of all of the brain cells working together. Mm-hmm. And somehow the anesthetics disrupt the signaling between the cells. So the cells, even though they either so the messaging is still there, but somehow anesthetics basically prevent the cells from reading the messages by other cells. So that's what consciousness. And, but the brain is still fully active. You're not, you know, you're, you're not a zombie. You're not, you're not a vegetable. It's just that somehow the, the communication, the quorum was disturbed, and I just have a gang of cells that are ran, randomly firing, but they're not understanding each other's each other's messages. So that's and so yeah, dopamine. And I think the um, the people who do meditation, they found that the monks who are claiming like out of body experience and like uh, extreme tolerance to pain and and cold and and heat, they actually are shown to have this this. Uh, Tremendously increased interaction between the different different brain regions. Uh, I had a few podcasts with him in like 2014, but Phil, aka Pranarupa, was like a yes. Ray P inspired blog, uh, blogger, very intelligent, and he had linked to s- several things talking about meditation, uh, increasing DHEA, which I know you've written about being anti serotonin as well. Yeah, interesting. Okay. St- how is he doing, Pranarupa? I mean, I think his blog is gone, right? I haven't talked to him. I love the dude. I think he uh, had. I don't. I don't know if he was interested in be, like being an internet personality, <laughs> but he. I. I have a big heart for him, and I hope he's well. Um, but yeah, he is so intelligent. So. Okay. So. Uh, okay. So you linked me. Higher serotonin availability may be the cause of cognitive impairment slash dementia. So this is semi-related, right? So that's that's the first article that that basically, uh, if you look at some of the comments, other people noticed it as well. They said that level of criminal misreporting in the media should be punishable by jail, <laughs> because really all the media came out with these articles saying, "Oh my God." Like, uh, uh, you know, serotonin, uh, serotonin, the happiness hormone, when it's deficient, it can do more than just harm your mood, can make you demented, it can give you Alzheimer's. So that was about two years ago, and now we have another study which is just as misreported, and and both of these are saying that basically the excess of serotonin slash deficiency of CERT is behind apparently both Alzheimer's and Parkinson. Okay, so this was just related to... Yeah, well, yeah, I yeah. mean, maybe we'll get into slightly how does a serotonin excess develop under the uh, when the thyroid function is low, serotonin goes up? I can just explain immediately. The deactivation of serotonin depends on two things. Sodium, mm-hmm. because the CERT, the CERT protein is a, is a sodium-dependent protein, mm-hmm. and carbon dioxide. Without, and as you know, in hypothyroidism, uh, hypothyroid people lose, lose salt more, and basically, so, and they produce less carbon dioxide. So in the presence of, the, of, the, of a relative deficiency of these two, what should I call them? Cardinally protective nutrients or or uh, or chemicals. Uh, serotonin cannot get activated and builds up. And also a deficiency of thyroid 
allows the, the uh, a more, more tryptophan to get metabolized into serotonin by tryptophan hydroxylase. So you, you get this really vicious cycle, and since serotonin support, su- suppresses thyroid function, eventually you get into the cycle where you're producing my, more serotonin, you're deactivating less, and then so on and so on, and suppresses your thyroid even more. So over, with age, it's known that serotonin levels rise, and the levels of the catecholamines, including dopamine, drop. Uh, but it was thought to be an adaptive, basically an adaptive reaction to aging. Um, and of course, you're never going to see mainstream media saying that, oh, well, maybe the increase of serotonin with age is a cause of many of the pathologies we, we'll be seeing. It's not It's not an adaptive thing. I just ha- had a great quote about a paper saying like salt restriction increased the serotono- serotonergic symptoms in man, but I can't uh, find it at the moment. It's on the forum. I, I posted uh, basically the... Um, that the, anything less than five grams of sodium, of elemental sodium per day, it, it activated the renin angiotensin system mm-hmm. and and the serotonin system, the serotonin cortisol system as well. It's it's a, it's on the form. I'll send you the link later. But and this means so five grams of elemental serotonin. Um, sorry, five grams of elemental sodium means about twelve grams of salt because mm-hmm. it's sodium chloride, mm-hmm. or about twenty grams of baking soda. That's how much you need to consume daily in order to keep these things under control. And that's way, way, way more than any any doctor, no matter how liberal that doctor is, will recommend. They'll probably say even like no more than, I don't know, a pinch of salt on top of what you're eating already. Well, well I should read this. I love this quote. Uh, it's, I think, a race in an interview. But he says, you can't understand the other things I'm working on unless you know where serotonin fits in. To understand unsaturated fatty acids versus saturated, you have to understand estrogen and serotonin. And to understand thyroid, you have to understand all of those. (laughs) Ray doesn't generally speak like that. So I thought that was like a kind of an interesting way of putting it. But again, like when you encounter Ray's work from coming from low carb or veganism, it asks a lot of the individual because you are most likely flipping a lot of different things from serotonin not being the happy hormone, from estrogen not being the female hormone. It's the the shock stress hormone in both sexes from maybe you think the unsaturated fats are heart protective and the saturated are harmful. So, and then again, a person might not, might only think about thyroid in relation to like a, uh, what the TSH range is, you, you well, know, burning like, calories, right? They were yeah. like, Oh, thyroid just controls metabolism, which means I'm going to be lean. Right. Yeah. But it's a lot more than that. Like if you agree that CO2 is not just a waste product, if you know, if you agree that salt, like it's more than an electrolyte, it has so many other different, different roles as a cough factor, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, but I, I think one of the advantages that Ray has is that because he's lived through the time, these different times and he's actually seeing the rise and fall of these different hypotheses to him will be like, he can easily spot the fraud because <laughs> he's, he's lived through the 40s and 50s and 60s when serotonin was known as a carcinogenic agent. Mm-hmm. Like basically the carcinoid syndrome was very well known, the fibrosis, that, and it was known that these people had the carcinoid syndrome, they didn't die from their cancer. They actually died from the fibrosis caused by the excess serotonin. So doctors were extremely wary of basically like there wasn't, I don't know of any clinical trials up until the 80s where people were actually injected with serotonin directly. It was considered too dangerous to even try, to even consider. Uh, uh, well, speaking of, uh, I just had it. It was a really funny animal quote talking about injecting uh, 
Okay, serotonin injected intracerebrally in minute physiological quantities caused severe neurological alterations. Yeah. One third of the serotonin injected animals suffered mild neurological deficits, one third uh, major neurological deficits, and one third died. Right, <laughs> yeah. So, so none of them did well, basically. Like, that's, that's the cap. So if you elevate serotonin, you will not be well. <laughs> that's so much for happiness. Okay, yeah, we could probably keep going on this, but uh, okay. So your next article is a vast majority, ninety percent of depression cases are caused by stress. Yeah, just just open it up and look. This this is from WebMD, which is really like as as many people know, this is like the bastion of 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 mainstream science, right? So if you look, they have an article on stress and depression, and then they're talking about major depression and whatnot, and it says about 10% of people suffer from depression without the trigger of a stressful event, <laughs> 10%. And then I actually, I emailed because they have a contact us button at the bottom. And I'm like, well, let me just, let me just send this email. You probably won't get answered, but he did. And so some webmaster basically said, um, he, you know, he's like, I wasn't the one who, who's, who's working on this, but I, I can see the notes. And he's like, yes, basically, basically at the time um, when this was written, um, uh, it, the, the, the evidence pointed that most of the, um, most of the episodes, most of the acute episodes of major depression were caused by like a stressful event, like, uh, getting fired or like, uh, you know, you know, having, having problems in your, in your relationship, mm-hmm. or like a loved one dying or something like that. He's like, and he basically is like, yeah, that's what it means. I'm like, so why would you write that 10% of people <laughs> suffer from depression without stress? Why don't you write the other thing, which is. You know, the much more impactful statement, which is that the vast majority, in parentheses, 90% of people get (laughs) depression from a stressful event. He's like, well, it's not my choice. It's not my decision. I don't know who decided this and why, but he's like, I can tell you that your interpretation is correct. In other words, yes, 90% of people who get an episode of acute major clinical depression, which requires treatment, according to medicine, do get it as a result of a stress, a single stressful event, a single well, this might be a good time to talk about serotonin's uh, active, like many things activate the adrenal glands, but serotonin is one of the most like powerful activators. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, that's what shows that serotonin is, is really part of the whole stress cascade. So anything that activates the adrenal system at the expense of the thyroid and the gonadal uh, basically axis, they call it the, the hypothalamus pituitary gonadal versus the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal. And these two are largely, you know, uh, you know, inversely correlated. An overactive adrenal gland will mean, you know, less, less gonadal, less thyroid, et cetera, et cetera. And serotonin is known to be if uh, perhaps uh, – so you can get an activation of the stress response even if you block completely that CRH peptide, which is released by hypothalamus, which is the, the initiator of the stress cascade, CRH – uh, uh, basically released from the hypothalamus, then CRH causes the increase of ACTH, and then ACTH causes the, the cortisol to be released. You can actually get the same response uh, by blocking both CRH and ACTH, which mm-hmm. shows you that the adrenal glands have receptors for serotonin and are very sensitive to it. So in other words, even in the absence of your brain, <laughs> you can actually get the stress reaction <laughs> simply by, by elevating serotonin or providing it in the milieu where the, where the adrenal cells are. There have been multiple in vitro and in vivo studies. You can, as soon as you inject serotonin, cortisol rises. And it's not a coincidence that serotonin antagonists, such as cyproheptadine, are actually used successfully for treating of, of Cushing syndrome, which is the, the disease of excess cortisol. You can treat it with, you know, with cortisol antagonists as well, but 
apparently serotonin antagonists work much better. There is something very systemic about about the stressful effects of serotonin and blocking it conversely is very systemically protective, beneficial. And then in the presence of the PUFAs, the serotonin becomes even more pro-stress, like the nitric oxide, the liberation of lipolysis, the liberation of the free fatty acids, their breakdown into prostaglandins and things. So it's just, it just becomes like this stuff might be not so bad if we were saturated with uh, saturated fatty acids, right, but right. it becomes it, it. It doesn't bec- like, you know how it's popular to talk about hormesis or whatever online. And the reason like you and I don't talk about that is, uh, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like out of context. Like it's, you don't have to worry about like the stress is already occurring <laughs> to some, right. to some great degree, you know, uh, depending on the person's age and their history. And so it's not a question of whether it's how to increase that stress, which we've talked about in other episodes, but, um, one thing I did so, want to – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so hormesis really – you can only talk about hormesis in a situation where you can uh, – the, the stress response is mild and then shuts off, right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the case when you're loaded with PUFA. In, in other words, it becomes actually a vicious cycle. So once you start the stress reaction – so if, you, if you're fully loaded with saturated fats, the way it works is they actually uh, – uh, um, so when you're under stress and when you deplete glycogen, eventually free fatty acids rise. But saturated fats have an anti-stress effect. Actually, mm-hmm. they're known to stop and oppose – all of these stress mediators, they do oppose serotonin, they do oppose CRH, they do oppose cortisol. So you see nature developed a system that if you do have actually saturated fats, you will get the initial the initial stress response, and actually it's good to mount an energetic and actually robust stress response. It's the lack of turning it off that's really the problem. So what happens is that when you're not loaded up on these saturated fats, when, when you have PUFA, as soon as they hit the, the bloodstream, instead of turning off all of these mediators, they actually promote them, right? And then these mediators, the stress mediators like serotonin, cortisol, et cetera, actually uh, not so much cortisol, but serotonin actually activates all of these enzymes that, that synthesize the inflammatory mediators from PUFAs. Uh, serotonin activates COX and LOX. Serotonin activates inducible nitric oxide synthase. So, and, and then, so you get the vicious cycle and there's no stopping it. So, so it's like, yes, uh, you, you did have chromesis, but it, it never ended. So now, so what do you call chromesis that never ends? It's not a chromesis anymore. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but but I think because if you look, if you go to look to the Wikipedia definition of chromesis, I think it talks about a brief, robust exposure to stress, right? Mm-hmm. I, and I don't think it talks about like a long-term exposure to stress. Then it's no longer. I don't know what it called it, but in animal studies they call it comes uh, chronic, unpredictable, mild stress. That is a single. That's one of the most fundamental ways to damage and kill an organism and or kill an organism in animal studies. Why would it be any different from humans? They use this for every animal type that they that they do use clinically, including all the way up to the humanoid apes. So if chronic and predictable mild stress can kill a macaque or a gorilla or a chimpanzee, I mean, at what point would uh, the, the corrupt mainstream medicine say, oh, yeah, these are just animals. They're not like us. Really? Chimpanzee is 97% human. So, or, or, or conversely, we're 97% chimpanzee. So at what point would you accept that <laughs> all of these things that you allow to apparently to be very valid for clinical research in animals, at what point do they start being valid for humans as well? Well, I guess the gatekeepers are, you know, people with the white coats. You don't get to ask these questions, you and I. 
Well, while we're on the subject, I forgot who it might have been Nicholas Simpson. Do you know who that is? He's a very intelligent. Um, he's definitely like on your level. He's a very smart guy. He he has like a weightlifting thing, whatever. He's a uh, interest in Ray Pete's work, but I think he commented on something about talking about uh, long term fasting or whatever. And you know how people are always saying this is beneficial for the auto. Um, how do you say it? Auto autophagy or. Yeah, autophagy, 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 or autophagy, or whatever. Yes, yes. And and also like the stem cell recruitment, but like the like in his interpretation was like this was just a sign of damage, basically. Yeah. But it's it's being it's being framed as something useful, and it gets back to that redox balance of pr- promoting. Like you could uh, promote proliferation uh, through shifting the redox balance towards reduction exactly but but that necessarily wouldn't serve the like death by a thousand cuts like that you're you're not going to want to do that in in any situation where you're already likely i mean the environment the environment is putting us in that uh reduced redox balance and and so shifting things over in that direction is not necessarily going to be helpful especially to uh, increasing that proliferation and things yeah, and also the difference between autophagy and inflammation is temperature. Remember, like mm-hmm. somebody asked Pete about fasting, and he said you have to be careful with this because – and first he said the the same thing that this study that I posted recently, and I, he didn't quote the study, so this, and he's been saying it many times, which suggests he's been no, he's known it for a long time. Mm-hmm. He basically said fasting, the only benefit is reduced endotoxin and like basically slightly lower burden of PUFA, right? But then he says like after the first 48 hours – you're really starting to damage yourself because then the additional PUFA floods your system because now you've increased lipolysis beyond baseline. And then basically this this lower endotoxin is not saving you anymore. You're not getting the benefit. And after your temperature drops, your core temperature, which is what happens when you fast, right, because you're running on adrenaline, running on cortisol, then you don't no longer get autophagy. You get actually – you get inflammation. And, and that's consistent with, you know, serotonin rising and adrenaline rising – all of these actually promote the COX and LOX enzymes and all of these other downstream enzymes. So again, if you're entirely like like uh, you know um, loaded with uh, basically like all of your fat stores are saturated fat, kind of like a baby, you're probably okay. I mean, the, ba- the baby gets cranky, but I don't think the baby gets like you know I haven't seen a baby get damaged from like fasting for like a day or two. Mm-hmm. They're just not very happy. But I've seen people who fast and they look like zombies. They don't look healthy at all. Um, and of course, like some of the responses, like yeah, but that's hormesis, right? If you remember, Gball said, yeah, you're gonna feel like crap for like two, three months, but then, <laughs> but then because like you know, like the body will have processed all of these, all of this diseased tissue, then you're gonna feel fine. And I said, okay, so then what happens? What, what happens next? He's like, well, then the fast ends, and then you regain the weight, and it's all it's all nice and dandy. And I'm like, and then he's like, well, in a few in a few months, you're gonna have to start fasting again. I said, well, then <laughs> this is you know, isn't a cure, is it? It's the same. It's the same mentality of managing things. You know, like this. Um, I get it. Maybe it's helpful, right? But but so far, all of the studies that I've seen show that. that remember the study that says dieting is deleterious. Like these things may work for a healthy young person, where you can actually get the hormetic response. For somebody who's older and or like they have a significant amount of fatty tissue that's composed mostly of PUFA, I have no idea how fast it would be beneficial beyond like the first. 24 hours when you're really getting like the robust benefit from lowering the toxin. You can actually feel it, right? Like your 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 stomach flattens mostly because when there's when there's no endotoxin or little endotoxin, you get a lot less cortisol overproduction. And then you it's obvious that and your face is less puffy, et cetera, et cetera. But after like is you know, for me, I've tried it. 
after literally the second day, I started getting this like, I don't know how to say it, like a feeling of malaise and like and like a low-grade fever. And I even sent email to Ray about, um, I don't know, it was back in 2014. And he said like, yeah, fatigue and this feeling of basically of um, low-grade fever when you're fasting. He's like, that's the elevated free fatty acids. Like, he's like, I would try a little niacinamide aspirin. And like this, the moment I tried it, both, I mean, all these things disappeared. But if I don't eat, I start getting, getting them again. And as soon as I restarted eating, they're gone. Yeah, 20, uh, two years, 23-hour fast every day, one-hour eating window. I That's what I put myself through. So I'm oh. speaking about my – I'm not just shitting on this because I don't like the fasting idea for some reason. I uh, definitely have experimented with it uh, to a great degree. The one last thing I wanted to read before getting onto the BPA idea, uh, article was – um, you, I, I could, this could have originated from you for all I know, but it, depression has been linked to a state of accelerated aging yep. and depressed, uh, individuals have a incidence of various diseases of aging, such as cardiovascular and cere- cerebrovascular diseases, metabolic syndrome and dementia. I thought that was interesting because I had never, I had never really thought about depression being a, uh, d- accelerated aging. I thought that was just uh interesting choice of words. Sweet. Okay. Do you want to talk about the endocrine disruptors? BPA can cause autism several generations later. Yeah. This. I mean, I, I thought it, it matches nicely Ray's recent newsletter, which was about the trans transgenerational effects of uh, GMO foods. I think specifically, um, and and I think Ray said it basically like you, you have a situation. It's really nefarious because you have the generation that's eating a GMO food, nothing happens, or at least nothing really bad. Then the generation after that, their kids mm-hmm. f- seem just fine, and then the generation after that seems fine, and then Three generations later, basically that generation will be entirely, completely infertile, mm-hmm. and that, that's that's stunning, right? I mean, basically, um, it, it immediately raises, like, it basically makes me think about the declining fertility I've been posting about, um, so so like over the last year, like the increase, the increases in cardiovascular disease, the increases in cancer, it, all of these things increases in young people, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, if 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 the transgenerational effects are so robust, then what what would have happened like two or three generations later and the the answer is like aside from all of the atomic bomb testings that happened uh, around the world after the end of the, of the wars you have two world wars right so those effects are actually just starting to manifest now like these people were fine and and you know i know they're often used as an example like oh yes you know if stress was so bad why weren't these people these war veterans dropping like flies uh well many of them did uh <laughs> and, and not from bullets and and then basically like now I guess we are paying the price for for this tremendous stress and poisoning and because of course in, you know in love and war there are no rules right so all of these people got exposed to God knows what and all the way up to the Vietnam War uh, Agent Orange and, and and all these other toxins that they that they in, in, imbibed and ingested only now they're starting to uh, to to manifest so they you know it's just a it's just a study that shows that even if nothing's going on right now. It, it will probably affect uh, the you know the, the the subsequent generations. The good news is that because that's a fairly depressing thought, is that if you actually change your lifestyle for the better, and actually you improve your own health regardless of whether you're carrying this epigenetic uh, you know uh, short stick or or you know a bad a bad hand a bad card, actually the change in the environment is also inherited. The change in health for the better is also inherited, and there's no telling you know whether where this may be able to cancel. Like the the transgenerational bad effects altogether. It's just that the 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 studies on 
the, the, the carrying over of transgenerational positive effects are very few and far between simply because, you know, mainstream science still hasn't exactly admitted that you can have a non-genomic uh, transfer of information across, across generations. They're, they're only now starting to accept it because these studies have come out, but they, all, of the, all of the studies have looked at bad, bad things like uh, mice getting exp- – uh, like a pregnant mouse getting exposed to like smelling cat urine. And then basically seeing if the if the mice that, that, that she gives birth to will will actually have the same fear or like the father of the of the offspring before that like this this litter gets gets started uh, the the father gets exposed to cat urine and then then he pregnates the mouse and then the, the like the little mice are born and they're afraid of cat as well so all of these are basically stressful things there isn't so much research on like oh let's take these organisms that are basically that are coming from generations that have been exposed to these toxins. And let's put them in a nice environment and see what happens. Ray talked about one, one study on mental health, and he showed that basically all that's needed is a single generation given exposure to a nice, stimulating, non-stressful environment, and that interrupted the vicious cycle of transgenerational bad effects. That was for mental health only. I would like to see something being done for like more, uh, more physiological conditions. Oh, I think about my, I had braces when I was little. I, I, I swear to God, I got like a x-ray every month or something. Like I, I, I just remember constantly getting x-rays and I had like broken my leg and got a bunch of x-rays. So th- speaking about transgenerational stress, like who knows how that affected me and then my offspring and things like that. So again, speaking about if somebody didn't believe that the environment was harmful, like try to think back in your past of how many x-rays you got and, and those yeah. things are transgenerate uh, affecting the person and their uh, offspring later. And, and, and by the way, for the x-rays, that's something that's actually not even disputed even by mainstream science. They're telling you that if you've worked at like a nuclear power plant or you were exposed to like a, a radioactive fallout, then, then then your offspring is definitely going to be affected. This is stuff that doesn't, it's not, it's not known to be mutagenic, right? The BPA, the endocrine disruptors, they're, they're thought to simply affect only you, right? They don't change you. They don't change your GMO, but they do. They do affect genetic expression, and that's really what like the hard pill that science is trying to swallow now. Even though it's been known for more than a hundred years, I guess Lamarck is laughing in his grave right now. But uh, <laughs> you know the the idea of like you leading a bad lifestyle and this being passed on to your kids, that's very scary legal repercussions for the powers that be because it can be used eventually to do these massive class action lawsuits by people who've been simply like tormented at work because they say not only you ruined my health, mm-hmm. but now you ruined the health of like multiple of my future offspring. Mm-hmm. There's no telling where it ends. The research that I saw and I mentioned in that post, um, it said that it can last up to 14 generations, double digits. So that's huge. Um, but nature usually doesn't create something without creating a, some, some, uh, a, the ability to reverse it as well. So the fact that mental health issues can be reversed but the vicious cycle transgenerational can be stopped by even a single generational exposure to like freedom and 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 you know leisure and like interesting things and, and a rewarding environment. Does it suggests that the same thing should be able to be done for general health as well? I didn't think about that, but you're right. The class action lawsuits. I that's a really interesting thought on where that would go. I think that's the main reason we haven't seen epigenetics being more popular because. Um, it opens the door, Pandora's box, to basically. I mean, this is like a corporation's nightmare. And of course, a lot of people will probably abuse it, right? They'll say all kinds of people will come out of the woodwork to try to file 
frivolous lawsuits trying to claim that they were harmed at work because it's it gets very nebulous. Like, how do you define abuse at work? Did somebody yell at you? Did you have a mean mom, right? I mean, it's like it's not it's not easy, right? But it still opens the door to a corporation defending itself against every employee that they ever had, because you know the law allows even the relatives of of past employees to sue, and it has happened already many times. So there's precedent. So now you this corporation is like, well, this means I, I cannot really uh, treat my employees like slaves, which is horrible. The profits will suffer. What are we going to do? <laughs> we can't be competitive anymore because we have no slave anymore. <laughs> on that note, uh, let me just read off again that we have a giveaway going on. So you just need to like the video, uh, leave a comment, and then subscribe. And we're not only giving away a bottle of Idealab's Tokovit. And what were the other ones you said, Georgie? Uh, one Estroban and one Energin. So Georgie is providing these at the goodness of his heart. And so thank you for that, Georgie. Sincerely appreciate it. And so, and yeah, we'll announce the winners uh, or uh, on not the 6th, but the 13th, no, uh, the 12th of July. Awesome. Uh, okay. We will get on to questions here and we have a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're doing it pretty good on time. Uh, the first one is from Yale. And they say, hi, guys. Thanks for always taking the time to do this. I lately came across a, a, a lot of negative effects of living at high altitude, more depression, loss of muscle mass, immune uh, system suppression. Uh, what explains that? And then I asked him what specifically he was thinking of, and he did link to some things. And to be honest, I never got around to reading them. Do you, do you have any perspective on this? So there are some studies showing increased in suicidal rates of people who moved suddenly to a very high altitude. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is an acclimatization period. And and basically the um, one explanation of the increase in suicide rate is that when you move too quickly to too high of an altitude, your brain swells. And that's why the the drug acetazolamide was actually created for this specific reason, the carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, to basically treat so-called mountain sickness. There's There's even a name for it. And mountain climbers get it, especially because they climb too high too quickly. Uh, and, and it, you know, if the brain swells too much, it can be really dangerous. It can herniate your brain. It can kill you. But in milder versions, it's known to cause nausea, disorientation, uh, depression, uh, basically. Um, and any, anything that affects the brain will usually affect the immune system as well um, and even muscle mass. So I would, I would actually try the acetazolamide and, if possible, depending on how, what, you know, how big the altitude is, do a little bit of an acclimatization period. At least that's how it's done in professional mount, mountain climbing cycles. Um, anything more than um, 6,000 feet uh, basically requires acclimatization. And even if you lived at like at sea level and then you move to 6,000 feet, uh, in general, even experienced mountain climbers will actually try uh, take a little bit of a of a carbonic of acetazolamide. And good substitutes for acetazolamide are usually thiamine, vitamin B1. Uh, vitamin B3 and acetamide should also help, um, and methylene blue. Um, all of these are supposed to raise carbon dioxide, um, which basically helps shrink the brain. Actually, extracts that extra fluid from your brain, so you basically get um, um, you prevent the development of a temporary hydrocephalia, which is what this whole mi- mountain sickness is all about. Um, as far as other negative effects, I haven't seen many. I mean, most uh, if you look at the transgenerational studies on people that are, that have lived at high altitudes for several generations, even people who weren't originally from there, they were they were uh, lived at sea level and then they moved up, you'll see nothing but good good changes in health. 
there was a uh, a graph that's that uh, was circulating the news a few years ago and basically it was a it was a heat map of the ca- the the cancer rate and it was mapped on top of basically the altitude uh, of the United States and it was almost like a topographical map like basically the higher up you went especially the area around the Rockies mm-hmm. you had the lowest rates of cancer and keep in mind some of these areas like experienced some pretty unhealthy periods like the areas of Nevada Colorado Wyoming and even Montana they actually experienced some heavy radioactive fallout from the from the nuclear tests in the 1950s and early 1960s so it's not like these people are living in a very, very pristine, uh, un- unpolluted environment. Yet they still have the lowest rates of cancer than anywhere else in the country. And places like um, basically coastal coastal areas like uh, you know uh, uh, Maine, uh, uh, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Florida, and and coastal areas of California, that, that that's where the the the, the uh, cancer rate was highest. Actually, also also the cancer mortality was highest there too. While the cancer mortality was lowest in the in the high altitude areas, uh, some people are asking questions in the chat, and and you and I are just are not going to get to them unless they're super chats. So we'll read the super chats at the end because we d- we have like almost forty eight questions to answer. So wow. we'll read the the super chats at the end. And again, uh, George and I are just sending the super chat money to Mister Ray Pete. So. Uh, yeah. Okay. Next question. Uh, Kirk says, "What are your uh, what is your take on ciproheptidine for gut inflammation, uh, lowering damages of chronic stress and high serotonin uh, doses, dosage and duration? How to mitigate weight gain on it, or are there safe alternatives without the weight gain side effect?" Can I like chime in for a second? Sure. I'd be interested in your perspective, but I feel like that it's it's become a very common thing for people to to say like oh i i want to take ciproheptidine but i don't want to gain weight on it when it's if you have like a profound lack of appetite that is like a symptom of it in it of of itself that something is like seriously wrong and so yeah. when somebody gains their appetite back and they start eating more food i don't necessarily think that can be framed as a bad oh, gaining of weight yeah obesogenic <laughs> kind of kind of thing you know so so again keep, keep Go for it, but I just wanted to throw that in there. So a couple of things. First of all, I like cyproheptidine. I like it in the lower doses that Ray has mentioned as well, uh, between one and two milligrams. He recently has responded to people in email uh, saying that, oh, it's a really safe drug. I know people who use 30 milligrams a day just to feel normal. Um, I think the evidence is pretty strong at this point that cyproheptidine in dosages higher than four milligrams daily elevates liver enzymes. To what point that is pathological or not, it's still up for, for debate because the elevations are mild. And I think Brother Barnes said it up to like two times the upper limit. Basically, if, if Cellier, say, right? Not Barnes. Uh, so, oh, yeah, Cellier. Yeah, Cellier. Who, who said that basically if you liver enzymes, let's say the ALT enzyme, I think the upper limit is 48 or 50. So it means up to 100 is probably not that bad. It actually means that the liver is doing its job. It's trying, it's working to, to get rid of something, right? which is, you know, maybe metabolize the cyproheptidine. So it's not necessarily a, an indication of injury. Uh, usually, if, people, if, you go, if you look at people with hepatitis or like cirrhosis or any kind of like a, you know, really bad liver injury, their, uh, their ALT and AST are basically in the several hundreds and even, a thousand, even the thousands. That's considered like, you know, severe liver injury. Um, clinically relevant, I shouldn't say severe. Clinically relevant that requires treatment. So... But in the one to two milligrams daily, which is enough if you look at the like the binding affinity of cyproheptidine for the serotonin receptors in histamine, 
a few milligrams daily is plenty and should be enough to actually exert most of its beneficial effects. And it has a decently long half-life between eight to nine hours. So which means if you take it during the day, actually if you take it in, in the late afternoon, it's probably best because then it, will, it was shown to also decrease the rise of stress hormones during night. So it will prevent you from the you know darkness-induced host, you know, stress, stress cascade uh, of which the GI tract suffers the most. So one or two milligrams is fine. If you don't want to use cyproheptadine, recent studies show that the anti-acid drug famotidine, which is uh, sold over-the-counter, is an extremely powerful serotonin antagonist capable of completely stopping in its tracks potentially lethal serotonin syndrome. And, and basically, this was a case study published one year ago. It's, uh, I, I've, I've uh, posted the study on the forum. And the authors there actually are kind of scratching their heads saying, like, how would this happen? Like, famotidine is not a serotonin antagonist. It's a histamine 2 antagonist. But I dug deeper, and it looks like basically um, there was a study. There were several studies on it, and apparently histamine 2 antagonists dramatically inhibit the synthesis of serotonin systemically. Um, unfortunately, well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but there's several histamine 2 antagonists in production, in use right now, to be used as anti-acid drugs. It's famotidine, cimetidine, and ranitidine, and the latter two are dangerous. Like one of them elevates prolactin and inhibits the steroidogenic cascade, so it's kind of like, it's almost like a castration drug. And then the other one is known to suppress the immune system. Famotidine is unique among those drugs, that basically it has multiple other beneficial effects. It uh, it lowers free fatty acids. It's known to drop blood glucose in a uh, in a good way in diabetics. Um, and basically, it was recently tried as a treatment for schizophrenia. And now knowing that schizophrenia is not caused by dopamine excess but serotonin excess, that also confirms the anti-serotonin properties of famotidine. So all you need apparently is 20 milligrams. And the good news is that at that dosage. Famotidine was not shown to inhibit the synthesis and release of gastric acid. It was it, it, uh, it still had beneficial effects in on the schizophrenics and 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 on on the blood glucose and and the free fatty acids, but without the you know the suppression of the gastric acid, which is what we don't want, right? So if and it's not known to cause weight gain. It's it the only side effect that it is known to have, which also confirms its anti-serotonin effects, is inhibiting platelet aggregation, which is Anti-serotonin drugs do. Cyproheptin has the same side effect. Aspirin has the same side effect. But anyways, 20 milligrams of famotidine should be able to achieve something similar to, even though not cyproheptin, similar to the uh, TPH inhibitor fenclonine, um, which is, it, it, may be, it may be actually preferable because instead of relying on a receptor antagonist, right, which acts on specific receptors, probably, you know, you're actually cutting off the serotonin synthesis altogether. You're dramatically inhibiting it. Um, I've tried for more and I actually have nothing but good things to say about it. If I feel bloated for whatever reason, or I feel like this, this, you know, wave of endotoxin is hitting me, which is like the low grade fever, chills, shivering, right? Even in the middle of the summer, one tablet of 20 milligrams stops it and basically never comes back with cyproheptadine. Sometimes I've had to take multiple doses for that to happen because I like to use the lower doses. Maybe cyproheptadine will work if you take more, but I don't want to take more, but for more than and it's sold in this dosage over the counter, 20 milligrams, single tablet, usually resolves the issues for good. Sweet. Ryan Jacoby says, can you both share your thoughts on eliminating high ammonia producing bacteria? Uh, the only thing I've discovered that works 100% is a week-long protein fast, which I find incredibly unpleasant. I also find the high ammonia symptoms to return 
and one to three months after the protein fast. Yeah, there is a special antibiotic for that specifically. It's called rifaximin. Um, it's given to people with liver disease specifically because it destroys the ammonia-producing um, bacteria in the in the in the gut. Um, so um, and and it's also used to treat SIBO, C, uh, SIBO, the small intestine bacterial overgrowth. So it's basically it's a poorly absorbable antibiotic, and when you take it, it basically like stays undigested all the way until it reaches your colon, and that and and, and over there the bacteria that's most susceptible to it seems to be the ammonia-producing one. I don't know of any other way to specifically target that bacteria. That's the only way I know. You, of course, you can wipe out the microbiome with, you know, a more broad-spectrum antibiotic, like a combination of neomycin and, and, and uh, ampicillin will probably work pretty well. But, again, many people feel nervous about killing all of their bacteria. Did you see that paper? I think Ray linked to it. It's called like um, hyperammonemia, barking up the wrong tree or something. And it, it was like an old woman who had it. And then she, uh, a certain amount of thyroid fixed her uh, excessive ammonia production. Yeah. I don't know if it's worth bringing up. But the if, if somebody is constantly producing ammonia despite these different changes, and even despite an antibiotic, I think that means they have some kind of liver problem like serious kind of liver problem. Sorry. Liver problem or, or there's a problem with like excessive, excessive muscle breakdown. And basically like when you have too many amino acids in your bloodstream, the, the liver will convert them as much as it can into glucose. But that, that process of deamination generates a lot of ammonia. So basically like uh, people under tremendous amount of stress are known to oxidize protein. And, you know, we know it's not good to oxidize protein. So, mm -hmm. um, in, I mean, you can try like a little bit of progesterone because, it should be able to stop like the excess of the stress reaction or at the very least the breakdown of muscle tissue or, or tissue that gets gets converted to amino acids. Um, thyroid could work as well. You can try to chelate the ammonia. Aspirin chelates it partially. Um, you know, that Ceylon cinnamon that we mentioned before, but which is, contains benzoic acid, and aspirin is, is 2-hydroxybenzoic acid. Mm -hmm. So apparently all the benzoic acids chelate ammonia pretty well. But in general, just like you said, that's not fixing the, the root cause of the problem. And the root cause could be a liver issue or could simply be low thyroid combined with high stress, which leads to accelerated muscle breakdown and hence the overall the, the liver is trying to protect you, right? It's trying to get rid of these amino acids. And since it cannot glucuronidate them, tries to oxidize them and convert them to glucose. And as a result, you get the ammonia. Sweet. Uh, Robbie G says, question for you both. Uh, a friend has a recent scare and, of course, now wants to eat right, which means following awful mainstream advice. <laughs> he asked for my help. He'll never follow a Pete-ish Pete way. Is there a decent middle ground, uh, e.g. not LC uh, low-carb paleo? And then do you know who Kate Deering is? So somebody suggested How to Heal Your Metabolism by Kate Deering, and I've just heard nothing but good things about that book. Um, I don't know, but what are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are that the simplest thing, you know, if, if it's not possible to argue about the different diets, is simply take a tablet of aspirin. It will negate to a great degree many of the of the of the bad effects of those extreme diets. Um, and then, um, if nothing else, if it's possible to get this person to uh, to eat a little dairy, basically like cheeses, because they have casein, they have calcium, and they have some salt. And these things are supposed to have a, like a profound anti-stress effect, which most of the low-carb slash paleo diets will, will, will tend to uh, result in. But even if that's not a possibility, if that's like, if it's got to be like a one thing that this person would do, if, if they can be convinced to take a tablet of aspirin, I think that would, uh, that would be tremendously helpful. 
I would say that or or getting the vitamin D tested and becoming a replete in vitamin D that that's like one of those things that I consider to be such a minimal investment for such like a, a big dividend or whatever for how you feel. Um, but like, I don't want to go on a tangent here, but I don't think Ray's dietary recommendations are that crazy. You know, like I, I think it's actually crazier coming from like a vegan or low carb background, but like from somebody who's been on a zero carb, incredibly restrictive diet, like it doesn't feel and again, I don't want to say that I'm adhering to some arbitrary diet plan like that. That's not really the case at all. But I, I think his general things that he writes about, like he'll, I, I, I suspect that if he's fascinated by some food or substance, he'll generally write an article about it, whether it be milk or glycine or mushrooms and like composing a diet, uh, in, including those things in some way, shape or form, those very anti-inflammatory, anti-stress things like Again, maybe I'm too deep into it or too biased, but it it, it it's not it's not hard, nor is it uh, difficult, or nor is it seem restrictive compared to other ways uh, that I've flirted with or really done um, diet wise. It's your grandparents' diet, basically. You know, yeah. when you remove some of the more specific things, like you know, drink a gallon of milk and a quart of oranges, which I think he does. Like he's only suggested it to people who are like really sick. And they're like, oh, you know, what should I eat? I have this, you know, specific bad condition. Dude, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I also think it's kind of price too. Like, yes, like yes. Ray's whole diet uh, idea, he told me in a podcast, stemmed from trying to think of how poor people could eat better, you know? And so when he's saying, oh, two or three quarts of milk, that's like, that's a, it's a that's dollar, a, a few dollars. Yeah, it's right? a few dollars. And so again, I don't think he, again, I'm not speaking for Ray or trying to put words in his mouth. But when he's talking to some random person on the internet, he doesn't know how what their income is. So when he recommends two or three uh, quarts of milk, like people take that as some like wild suggestion, but it, it it could be within their income, you know? Yeah, the only reason I mentioned is because some people asked them specifically. They said like, "Oh, I have, I have problem with digestion. I can't tolerate almost any of the regular foods." Mm-hmm. You know what what would a person with a compromised digestion slash thyroid slash health would do? And usually his response is like easy, like things that do not generate endotoxin. And then basically he'll say like, uh, you know, in my experience, you know, some of the best are like uh, or milk and orange juice and then maybe a little bit of liver every once in a while. Like I've seen, sometimes his recommendations being as, just as short as that, right? Of course, he's got his, he has other ones for like different people. But, um, you know, in, in general, that, that would be the, the recommendation. Um, so – but, you know, again, like back to my point, like everything that he does, like and sometimes people's like, so what do you eat on a daily basis? Like what did you eat today? And he'll say, oh, I had some steak and like uh, well-cooked potatoes and marmalade. I mean that, that doesn't sound like something too far off or removed from like what your grandma would like cook for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may not be what your doctor would recommend, but that's pretty much how people used to eat before medicine and science in general got captured by these – Massive corporations where people remember they vote <laughs> on what's the best solution, right? So everything is by committee. Just uh, like you said, consensus for global warming, yay or nay. <laughs> I have it up on screen, but my friend Karen wrote, uh, I'm sure you've seen it, Georgie. It's called, it's an article called Stop Repeating. And I think it's a, a really e- excellent article. And one of the things I love that she says, like, it, like if you are truly peating, you will uh, give back to your fellow man asking for nothing in return. You yeah. will try to synthesize new ideas from 
giants in the field. Like, uh, man, I wish I could just scan through this and find the actual quote. Uh, Okay, she says, however, I would like to throw my hat into the ring and weigh in on this, not to hurt anyone's feelings, but for the sake of discussion. Uh, Maybe it could be, uh, maybe it could be uh, some help to people. If peeing really is your intended goal, in order to have a a complete experience of peeing, you should have to continually keep the big picture in mind like he does. You You would be of service to your fellow human asking for nothing in return. You would study firsthand other scientists and philosophers and make interesting connections that give you a comprehensive view of life. You would also write and paint and have a strong connection to nature as well as value humor. That would truly be peeing. And again, I'm not, I understand there's a process, you know, like uh, I was a total idiot, like couldn't understand anything Ray was saying and thought it was just another diet and, and was progressing it uh, as such. But I think at a certain point, you kind of understand what that what he's talking about is like extremely broad and a big view of life uh and yeah i don't know completely agree (laughs) (laughs) but i agree with her point there basically if you're doing well if you're eating well then you like you have an excess of energy and you want to throw the energy at the world Mm -hmm. you will not be in a situation where you'll be thinking hmm yeah but if i tell this person you know this negative knowledge that's that's you know i'm revealing too much they may be able to grab this and run run with it, right? It may hurt me in the long run, etc. None of these thoughts should be should be going through the head of a person. It's almost like a child, right? If it has an excess of toys, usually children don't have a problem sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if even if I mean some some of them are pretty possessive, but I've seen children who give away their toy and then they don't ask for it in return. Um, so it's not a problem for them because they're satisfied with their lives, and usually. Well, not usually. Always comes down to, to to energy because I've seen cranky kids, and they actually, incidentally, they become really possessive about their toys. Like <laughs> e- even if it's not about the toys originally, the arguing with the other children, it becomes over a toy. I guess it's something very specific they can argue about. That's how they 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 uh, they manifest their. That's how they talk it out, right? That's how like if if the two of them have a problem with energy, they can't talk about ATP, but they can fight over a truck, and and that that's what I'm usually seeing. <laughs> Okay, sorry for that tangent. Uh, Sugar Pete says a new paper titled uh, "How do you you know how to say this?" Dino trifenol, dinitrophenol, 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 dinitrophenol as medicine by John G. Geisler came out this year. It trialed small doses of DMP, one to five milligrams per day and noted successful outcomes. Will you be releasing a DNP supplement that can be dosed in these sensible doses and not the idiotic bodybuilder doses? So a couple of things. The answer is, the short answer is no. I've thought about releasing dinitrophenol for more than six years. <laughs> uh, even before I actually even started Idea Labs, I thought about making a dinitrophenol supplement and giving it to my friends. Unfortunately, the uh, FDA frowns upon dinitrophenol tremendously. Many people have been convicted and sent to prison for selling dinitrophenol, even though it's not a controlled chemical. So the most recent case that I can provide you is is, is, uh, from a person who actually used to work at the FDA, and he sold like a few grams of DNP, which is the abbreviation, on eBay to various people. And then basically one of those people had an allergic reaction. So it wasn't the typical side effect to dinitrophenol, which is you basically you cook your brain to death mm-hmm. uh, from, and you die from hyperthermia. No, this, this lady simply had an allergic reaction because it was, uh, I don't know if it was to the silica, it was some kind of an excipient in the powder. So she filed a complaint 
And an FDA not only fired this person who was one of their, like was, he was pretty high up in the hierarchy, mm-hmm. but also went after him and basically sued him in federal court. And, if, and this person is now in jail. Now, and this is not the, an isolated case. So if they can do this to one of their own, I really don't want to be on the other end of the of receiving like their love. And, and DMP is is in their black book. I've confirmed. I know people who work at FDA. Um, while it's not treated the same as, as basically as selling heroin, it's now in the same category selling Kratom. And I, I don't know if many people have may, may have heard of it. Kratom is now basically, even though it's not illegal by any, by any law mm-hmm. by, in, in the United States, FDA does crack down on people because it thinks that uh, most of the usage related to Kratom is not health-related and, and it should not be in the hands of, uh, of laymen. Mm-hmm. So in the United States, as, as in many other countries, you can have something in your position that's fully legal, but the moment it starts changing hands and money is exchanged, the regulatory authority can come after you. And in this case, it has shown that it does so, and it's pretty brutal. So unfortunately, it cannot be DMP. I have thought about this, I, have, I promise you, many, many sleepless nights thinking about how it can be legally brought to market, but uh, fortunately, no, FDA doesn't like it. So you heard it here first, no Idea Labs DMP. Uh, oh, oh, I mean, on, on the flip side, remember that one of the earliest studies that you posted on your, uh, uh, like the old website that you had, one of the first pod- podcasts that we did is that caffeine has the same effects as oh, dinitrophenol. I remember, yeah. Um, and also T3, it does. There are multiple studies comparing, and, and that's how really dinitrophenol makes you lose weight. It's an uncoupler, and T3, thyroid hormone, does the exact same thing in higher doses. Aspirin does the exact same thing in higher doses. I think the like the minimum dosage for uncoupling from aspirin, I think, is like two grams in a single dose. I don't know if it's going to have the same effects as dinitrophenol. Probably not, but you can get pretty close with, with legal alternatives. Sweet. Uh, Ellie says, uh, my uncle and cousin have advanced GI cancer. Uh, my other cousin is an oncologist and says that it's a rare familial form and that they are doomed. She says that the rest of the family can be protected for generations by an N- RNA slash protein blocking vaccine that she can make from our DNA. Please chime in. Thanks. I would absolutely not allow anybody to inject me with a with a with a RNA vaccine, especially when it comes to cancer. So you see, this is this whole idea stems from the fact that cancer is a uh, is an evil cell, and in the, and, and now the ideas are, are starting to shift from genetics to cancer being caused by a virus or some mm-hmm. other kind of pathogen, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's not a coincidence. That's how pharmaceutical companies love vaccines. Because it plays on two of the main messages. First of all, you're preventing disease before it even happens. And second of all, it's better to prevent the disease because the treatment, in other words, the vaccine for prevention is basically, it's uh, even though it may have horrible side effects, the public can easily be convinced that this is the better alternative, right, than, than, than death, which is, which is if you get this cancer. So um, uh, I would not allow this to happen. I don't think there's any solid evidence that cancer vaccines work. The HPV vaccine has many controversies and starting to actually get pulled out of some countries. They're actually banning it. Um, not so much uh, – they, they, they haven't started questioning the effectiveness yet, but they're starting to question the safety. Um, it does look like it's, it's dramatically raising the risk for some, of the, so for some other cancers unrelated to HPV at all. Um, so until we know more about how these cancer vaccines work, I would definitely not allow somebody to inject me with a RNA-modifying peptide – uh, it doesn't matter if it's created from my DNA or 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 or, um, or, or not. Um, and in terms of these other people being doomed, 
again, if you believe that cancer is a is a metabolic disease, then uh, nothing is irreversible. I mean, maybe these people can be the doctor can be convinced that these people can can try even a little aspirin can make tremendous difference. Mm-hmm. Even a little methylene blue, you can mop up that excess lactic acid and dramatically, if nothing else, dramatically improve the quality of life of cancer patients. Most of the malaise that cancer cancer patients feel is from the buildup of, of lactic acid. Let me just turn on the lights. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> cool, guys. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Sincerely appreciate it. And also, this was like a move from Friday to Saturday. So appreciate you guys kind of bearing with us. Um, looks like the chat is uh, healthy tonight. So I appreciate it, guys. And again, we're taking super chats. but And again, we're not pocketing the cash. We're just sending it straight to uh, Ray. So we appreciate it. And thank you to Georgie for joining me. You know, again, just if you guys missed the beginning, nothing is being exchanged here. And Georgie and I just like talking to each other. (laughs) And this this whole thing is mutually beneficial to both of us. So that's why uh, we're motivated to do it. And it's fun and it's exciting. And so we we appreciate having an audience. And yeah, so thanks, guys. Okay. Uh, Jeff Masters says, uh, with regards, with regard to top idea lab products, how quickly are they generally taken up in the bloodstream when placed on the skin for both oil-based and esters? Um, so uh, the, the, the tocopherol formulations are definitely absorbed more slowly. Uh, it takes about, uh, I've actually measured, I've done blood tests on myself. It takes about 30 to 45 minutes before uh, you know, a significant amount hits the bloodstream, the systemic circulation. Um, maybe like uh, I, I think the the tocopherol formulations absorb pretty pretty quickly into the striatum corneum, which is like the topmost layer uh, in the epidermis. But in order for them to reach systemic circulation, it takes about thirty to forty five minutes. The SFA and ethanol version usually absorbs much faster, uh, depending on where you put it on the skin. But if it's like a torso, shoulders, arms, legs, any any area that doesn't have too much hair on it. It's usually within 10 minutes is pretty well absorbed. And actually, they, it dries out within the first two to three minutes. Um, so my preference to is, has always been when people ask me for, you know, which version I prefer, I've always said I, I personally prefer the SFA um, and ethanol version for topical. And then I, I personally use the tocopherol MCT version sublingually. Uh, but we cannot advertise it this way officially because – uh, the license doesn't allow it, so both versions are advertised for topical administration only. Even though we only use food food grade or, or you know or higher ingredients. Have you come ac- across like I know you you said you did tests specifically on yourself, but do you think that ten percent uh, absorption topically does that ring true to you? Because that's something he said. Ray said even five percent to ten percent might be absorbed topically in in regards to the fatty oily vitamins. It's it's higher in my experience. I think it's yeah. it's about thirty. Yeah. Um, and and so the thing is with the with the tocopherol slash MCT or any kind of other fat mixture uh, that has tocopherols in it, the absorption is much slower, but it lasts much longer. Mm. So because basically the permeability of the skin it allows a specific flux per like a unit of time, and when you have highly lipophilic and large molecules like the tocopherols and any other oil that you mixed with it. These these are relatively large molecules, still allowed to be absorbed through the skin. But the closer the closer you get to the 500 limit, like for the for the topical absorption, the the the, the harder time they're going to have absor- not harder, but it will be it will be a much slower process. While smaller molecules like ethanol and like the uh, the SFA ester ester that we use for the mix, they're much they're absorbed much quicker. So so the tocopherol MCT. 
you will probably get actually, uh, if you leave it long enough, which most people don't because it's oily and it's messy, if you leave it long enough, let's say for up to 48 hours, you're probably going to get most of it absorbed, believe it or not, um, because it will absorb through the skin and then the skin will no longer be oily, but the absorption doesn't stop there. So now like the first, so there's a top layer epidermis and then the two more layers of the skin, and then these two layers underneath the, the top one now contain whatever you rub there, right? And that's, that thing is going to take a while to absorb, but it will continue to absorb. And eventually you will get, I would say, much uh, up to 80% probably absorption rate. Now, uh, so it's probably, I mean, maybe you can ask him and, and see what he means by 10% because maybe he meant like in the first hour or so. Maybe that, for that, without, with that hour, agree. But if you leave it long enough, the tocopherol MCT may even getting absorbed better over time because the ethanol version, a lot of it will evaporate. But in the process, there is a special study which showed that in the process of evaporation, that's what actually increases the flux through the skin. Mm -hmm. It's a very, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting process. So with the, with the tocopherol, you'll probably get like forty to fifty, maybe even sixty percent absorption within the first several minutes, but then the rest is likely wasted because most of the ethanol had, has already evaporated. So it may stay on your skin, right? But it won't get absorbed much because there's no carrier anymore. With a tocopherol, there is no evaporation. Neither tocopherol nor the fat evaporates. So you'll, you'll put it on your skin. It will take maybe 35 to 45 minutes to start feeling the effects. means systemically it started to absorb. But you will notice that with the, with the tocopherol versions, when they apply to the skin, the effects last much longer, even if you don't put any more. That's not a coincidence. It's just it's a, it's a it's a lower flux and a longer like a longer you know an extension of the effects. And some people prefer that. Sweet, uh, uh, R.J. Edwards says, "Why would reducing sugar intake and replacing it with potatoes make my progesterone-resistant back knee clear up? Uh, do I have a problem with sugar? Repl uh, well, replacing actually, sugar with potatoes," he says. Replacing sugar with potatoes. Um, in some people, if you take, if you drink enough sugar, if you ingest enough sugar, it stimulates the production of sebum, um, and the production of sebum." Um, in by by the sebaceous glands, it's it's sometimes driven in, uh, by a combination of of elevated cortisol and lower thyroid. So um, I don't know why. Like I think because the the potatoes contain a lot of potassium, so so it makes the sugar the starch get converted to glucose. So it makes it much more easily utilizable than just pure sugar. Um, I haven't had this experience from neither potato nor nor sugar. Um, but might, I do know. People, I would be curious if he was adding a lot of salt to his potatoes. Uh, yes. Yeah, so there's something in the potatoes that does make like the 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 the, the glucose better absorbent. I think it's the potassium because potassium acts similarly to insulin. So if you're drinking the sugar purely, in other words, like from a soda, and and you you drink more than let's say 100 grams, then basically you're starting to get to a point where you need some extra nutrients to help it metabolize and or absorb. Um, and usually you don't need many cofactors, but but it, a little bit of niacinamide helps because it lowers the free fatty acids to the point where the cell can actually uptake the glucose and metabolize it pretty easily. It doesn't need that much potassium. While potassium helps without taking niacinamide because potassium just forces the cellular uptake of that glucose even in the presence of uh, you know slightly elevated fatty acids. doesn't mean you'll metabolize the glucose, but at the very least the cell will, will uptake it. Sweet. This one's from Edward Cornish, and they say, can you guys discuss the ideal caloric intake to increase metabolism? 
Is more calories better as long as it doesn't spill over into fat? Uh, the answer will be yes, as long as it doesn't spill over into fat. Um, it, but it's hard to measure fat content. Um, first of all, a lot of the weight gain that people report when getting on the PET diet actually is mostly water. Um, because when you when you metabolize carbohydrates, you actually generate a lot of water as a byproduct, and and it's actually it's a lot more so than 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 when you uh, when you metabolize in fat um, per unit of of of, uh, of a nutrient. So um, so yes, as long as as long as you're not gaining um, central weight, in other words, as long as it's the extra calories are not resulting in central adiposity, then the the extra weight gain shouldn't leave, shouldn't really be that much of a problem. Perhaps the most famous case are the sumo wrestlers. They're they're ridiculously obese by Western standards, but they actually they're not very unhealthy. In fact, most of their fat is subcutaneous, and they don't have that much central obesity relative to the rest of the of the body. So it's really the ratio that matters. They still have pretty big bellies, but it's relative to the rest of, to the rest of their body. They wouldn't be considered centrally obese. Uh, while it, because that's really the fat that's that's due to endotoxin and cortisol and whatnot. So if you're getting mostly centrally obese, something in the diet isn't right and or thyroid is low. So if you're not getting that, then then I would eat to taste you know as many calories as you can. I don't know of any danger from from extra calories. You know you'll just keep ending up raising metabolism. Yeah, and of course your appetite would would really be the the best thing to go off of. But of course, if your appetite is abnormally low, especially in the morning, that could indicate this kind of bigger problem. And I don't know if he's necessarily asking, but like a Matt Stone, who is like a friend of mine, like he used to be on the internet promoting over like overeating food to increase the metabolic rate. And I, I am pretty, I think eating appetizing food is a, is a good idea, but I don't know if like consciously stuffing yourself is, is necessarily that useful, you know, because I do occasionally get asked that. There are several case studies of athletes doing that. I think there's one very, very uh, publicized YouTube video of a, a NFL player mm-hmm. who is eating 12,000 calories a day, basically, as a way to raise metabolism and be like really, uh, really energetic on the field. Mm-hmm. And so far, it seems to be working well. I can, right. I can send you the YouTube link. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a pretty cool experiment. Sweet. Okay. Uh, there's a bug attack in here. Okay. Dan says, uh, since it's summer is sunlight exposure directly on the scalp slash scalp hair directly beneficial for hair, or is it just skin exposure enough for sunlight benef- uh, benefits? IE thinking of whether to minimize hat wearing on sunny days during the summer for hair benefits. Somebody just linked in my, uh, YouTube comments, like sun exposure on the head, having a positive effect on hair growth. And then we talked about it previously, but uh, there was one paper, I think by Randall, and they were talking about the summer winter having such a profound effect on hair growth that any new drug that would be released would have to take into account the season that the, the participants were testing because if they weren't taking that into account, the results of the drug would be totally skewed. Skewed, Um, Yeah. So yeah, I do agree that it has a direct beneficial effect on the hair because hair growth is energetically driven as well. And then basically the the the, the red spectrum of sunlight and it's pretty intense light. Um, it helps to like get rid of the nitric oxide and and unleash whatever is blocking that cytochrome C oxidase enzyme. Um, and then of course systemic exposure. The I guess the bigger portion of a body of your body you're exposing to sun, the more vitamin D you'll generate. 
Um, so if you had to choose, so yeah, what I'm trying to say is that ideally I would do both. Uh, you know, if you're on the beach, I would, you know, I'll basically walk around in your, in your, in your, uh, you know, uh, swimsuit or, or, or like, or your trunks, but I would not wear a hat. And then, you know, if you're thinking about specifically benefits for the hair, then basically, and if you can't be running around in your, in your trunks, then, you know, I would at, very, at the very least make sure I'm not wearing a hat unless it's really hot outside. Then at some point it does become a problem because like uh, when metabolism is low, your body has trouble controlling um, basically, you know, getting rid of the heat through sweating and also starts getting an electrolyte imbalances that can also lead to like a little bit of a brain swelling. So if you start getting feeling like uh, out of it and like lightheaded um, during a really hot summer day, I wouldn't push it further. I would, uh, you know, maybe wear a hat or like, or, or go inside. Speaking of, have you heard of anybody ever using topical agmatine? That is something, that's something Ray mentioned to me uh, probably two years ago that he thought would be useful for people experiencing hair loss. And I didn't understand, but now kind of getting more into the nitric oxide stuff. Nitric oxide, yeah. Yeah. It makes I, like- I haven't heard of anybody using agmatine, but basically, um, like the, well, some of the studies with caffeine yeah. show that caffeine, like they weren't specifically looking for the effect of nitric oxide, but they did test like, you know, whatever metabolites caffeine changed. Mm-hmm. So they used the point, 0.001% solution, which is pretty diluted of caffeine applied to the scalp. And some of the things that it did is caffeine lowered TNF alpha, lowered NFKB, lowered interleukin 1 and 2, mm-hmm. and then lowered both the expression of inos and also the levels of nitric oxide in the follicles. Mm-hmm. So those are some of some of the changes that they saw. So I, so th- that may be why caffeine one one another reason why it helps for, with hair growth. I mean, I, definitely something that's probably almost completely unexplored. <laughs> you know, well, why like, not methylene blue in that case? So basically, you get methylene blue, you add vitamin C mm-hmm. in order to remove that blueness that many people dislike, okay. and then you apply that solution to the scalp. I mean, methylene blue has a nitric oxide inhibiting effect regardless of whether it's in the reduced or oxidized state. So it should still work and, you know, basically it won't stay in the scalp at all. I was gonna, that's, that's the thing I was going to bring up. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I, I made a video and I, and I was saying that the finasteride wounding, uh, and even probably massage were all, uh, promoters of nitric oxide or minoxidil obviously were promoters yep. of nitric oxide. And that my hypothesis was basically that these things were promoting like to a lesser degree wounding and massage, but the finasteride and the minoxidil were promoting nitric oxide and that could have a, a vasodilative proliferative effect on the, the yeah. hair growth. Yeah. But you would be, you would be promoting hair growth at like a, a exponential cost you know, you would like that would have an aging effect on uh, any tissue that the nitric oxide was upregulated in. But um, but I guess like what we're talking about, caffeine or topical uh, methylene blue and mixed in with vitamin C or niacinamide or aspirin or agmatine, like th- this is relatively unexplored, you know. So I guess I'm using this as a way to say, like, I'm not saying do nothing, but it's just right. like I'm really skeptical that these types of like injurious or like uh ways of going about things are like if you're wounding your scalp every day like the the general response in the comments was like well you know uh it's not going to have a systemic effect or it's it's not going to have any noticeable effect but i like i highly doubt that you know like you're not burdening yourself 
and I, like yeah, an yeah, added. Tell this a- to the people with PFS. I mean, they want to kill themselves, and now there's actually a class action lawsuit brewing um, that to convince FDA to uh, to admit that PFS exists. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, a couple of things. So, 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 uh, first of all, n- none of the of the uh, hair loss drugs that have been shown to kind of work. Uh, if you look at the way they do, it's like basically they may increase hair in the balding spots, but they, if you also see, like basically they also decrease dramatically the thickness. Mm-hmm. And the rate of growth of the rest of the scalp. Okay, so what, what you get is a kind of a trade-off. So you get a little bit of growth in the places where there, there isn't any. But then your whole scalp becomes, in general, like like feels much much sicker in a, in a, in a sense. So you're getting this weak, uh, like anemic hair growth, mm-hmm. right? And then it's almost like part of the, part of the, part of the energy, the chi, of your scalp went from the good areas to the bad ones, but it's like almost like a net, like a zero-sum game. And in general, needle minoxidil or finasteride are really good as long-term treatments because aside from their systemic side effects, they're known even among users that basically they really, in the long run, they really don't give you better hair. It's, you know, if you have a little bit of a loss of hair loss and, and the minoxidil and finasteride can correct that, then you then these people usually use it. But heavy, like people with heavy hair loss, do not stay on finasteride or minoxidil simply because they realize that the little bit of hair growth that they get is just not uh, worth, like the basically the, the deterioration of the rest of their scalp. And there are all kinds of other issues they break loose because probably because of the nitric oxide, um, a lot of these people start getting herpes breakouts on their face, which is consistent with the elevated nitric oxide on uh, on, on on the scalp. So probably not something you want. And if it can affect you from the scalp to the mouth, it's probably not something you want to do on a, you know, on a long-term basis. These, these herpetic viruses can, can really wreak havoc. Well, I mean, and just to run it by you, I was thinking that like ciprotrone acetate and spironolactone, or spironolactone, I always say it wrong, those were actually, because Wright has written about at least spironolactone is a uh, synthetic progesterone. It is, and, yes. And so I was thinking, okay, so those are more of like a physiological type of hair regrowth and obviously natural progesterone, whereas the uh, the finasteride, since it's having so many deleterious effects, that is having a pro-nitric oxide effect. And okay. so again, I'm, tr- I'm trying to like work through the idea that like a super physiological amount of nitric oxide can like you, like you talked about kind of restore a cosmetic type of hair growth. Right. And whereas like the progesterone or, or thyroid or, or whatever, or even red light, you know, I think that would be in that same category would have this more physiological type of hair growth of that would be associated with regeneration. Whereas the other types would be this degenerative type. And again, I got a little bit of heat for saying that, wounding and massage were in the type of degenerative uh, types of therapies. But again, I won't make my case again, but I, that's kind of what I came to the conclusion of. And we, we can move on. We could probably talk about this all night. <laughs> well, it'll be interesting. Somebody, somebody, I mean, you can obtain spironolactone and cipraptorone acetate pretty, pretty easily. They're, mm-hmm. they're non-controlled substances. So if somebody wants to apply one of these to the scalp and see, see if it helps, that would be a pretty interesting experiment to do. Well, uh, I, there was a younger guy who used like 100. I'm not saying for anybody to do this like legitimately, but used 100 to 200 milligrams of spironolactone. And uh, I mean, a cor- uh, on the hair loss help thread, and the regrowth was pretty phenomenal. But 
Yeah, I mean, spironolactone is is basically a, a diuretic. It's a mineralocorticoid receptor. Anti-aldosterone. Anti-aldosterone, exactly. Mineralocorticoid. Progesterone is the same. Actually, progesterone has a higher affinity for the for the MR receptor than spironolactone. Um, and a couple of other things. Spironolactone, for many people don't know, but it's also an aromatase inhibitor. It's anti-androgenic in the sense that it also competes for the 5-alpha reductase enzyme with testosterone. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, basically, because the mineral, so the the aldosterone receptors and the glucocorticoid receptors are considered part of the same family. Mm-hmm. So now there is actually emer- usually an antagonist of one is an antagonist of the other. So things like, for example, RU486, which is an antagonist of the glucocorticoid receptors, has now been found to also antagonize the mineralocorticoid receptors. So back in the day, there they weren't MR and GR receptors. There was simply glucocorticoid receptors type 1 and 2. Type 2 was the cortisol, really cortisol receptors, right? And type 1 was the aldosterone. But they all, they basically considered one receptor, just two different types. So conversely, spironolactone has recently been shown to actually being able to oppose estrogen, inhibit aromatase, and block cortisol's effects. And considering cortisol's effects on hair growth, how bad they are, that may be actually, I mean, it's a, that may be one of the reasons why spironolactone is helping. It just so happens that spironolactone is more bioavailable when taken orally compared to progesterone. So I bet you that if that person took an equivalent dosage of progesterone, 100 to 200 milligrams per dose daily, that's a pretty, pretty decent progesterone dosage. So if he took that in vitamin E and oil, I'm pretty, which absorbs much better, than just if you if you took straight progesterone, while spironolactone actually absorbs really well, no matter how you take it, he would he would have probably obtained pretty similar results. They're not that different molecules in terms of activity. So I have to address one last thing. But a commenter said, I think Danny is scared of affirming the presuppositions of hormesis r- with respect to massage and stretching. And so many of the comments <laughs> were talking about stretching like the galia region of the scalp, and they were. Like Ray talking, and you posted about it too, of creating ATP, and therefore the the massage of the scalp was creating ATP and leading to the restoration of hair. And I posted a thing on that video. I don't know how many people saw it, but there's a book called uh, a, The Baldness, A Social History or something. And I think it was started in 1890, talking about scalp massage as a uh, a way of combating combating hair loss. And every proponent of massage talks about the more intense the massage and the more basically the generation of uh, inflammation on the scalp. So therefore, nitric oxide, estrogen, that was the way the massage worked. It wasn't by, and also like, correct me if I'm wrong, but just stretching your skin on the galea, because I don't think that's a muscled region of the scalp, like... Where's the evidence that that creates ATP? Like I, 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 I don't know. The stretching that I've seen, the evidence was for muscle related only. I haven't seen it about skin. Uh, it may or may not. I haven't seen studies on that. So again, I'm I'm open to that, but like people were like, "Oh, you're ignoring the evidence and stuff," and I uh, I just w- was totally baffled. And so again, I think that's a uh, like a selective reading of that and any type of massage on the scalp. I think if it were to have some kind of nitric oxide promoting hair growth effect, you would have to uh, it, it endure some kind of injury on the scalp. And so 
again, I am, uh, I know 0.1% of people care about this, but it, uh, a lot of people were saying that on the video. Okay. We can move on here. <laughs> this will be like this is like a whole a separate topic for a whole separate podcast. I'm I'm real fired up about it. It's I've been like keeping it inside. Okay, uh, Cam or no? Um, yeah, Cam says, "How are we doing on time?" Okay, we'll try to kind of wrap this up within the next 25 minutes or so. So we might not get through all the questions. Uh, Cam says, "Is pasteurized milk really just as beneficial as raw?" I drink both with no problem, but I can only get full fat raw milk. And sometimes with 32 ounces at a time, it does seem to bother my stomach for a few minutes. Is low fat pasteurized better than full fat raw? In general, what animal foods uh, like oysters, meat, and eggs are better raw than cooked, if any? Thanks, guys. Uh, I don't I don't think any meats are better raw than cooked. I know there is like a whole – if you ask like a steak eater, they'll probably kill you if you tell them like you should eat it like medium well or even – you know, better cooked. Um, you know, I mean, there've been so many recent cases of, of food poisoned by salmonella or E. coli. Last time um, I got food poisoning was raw oysters in the Philippines. I felt terrible. Yeah. I, I I would eat the raw oysters, but I think one of the reasons people like uh, many people don't don't, don't um, I guess neglect the fact that eating them with this with this horseradish sauce that has a potent antipathogen effect. So um, every time I eat raw oysters, I eat I eat it with a horseradish sauce. I wouldn't eat them raw on their own. Um, but uh, in terms of so I don't, I wouldn't eat I wouldn't eat raw seafood and or meat. I would try to cook them at least uh, at least partially. Um, and actually, as, when it comes to meats, I prefer all all, all of my meats cooked well. Um, and the only meat that I would consider eating not fully cooked is beef. But even then, I eat it medium well. But as far as – actually, pork is really dangerous if you eat undercooked. Uh, it can easily kill you. And their um, pork is extreme – it's considered like a real delicacy in China. And there are cases like like hundreds of thousands of cases each year in China of poisoning from undercooked pork and chicken, but pork usually more often. And, and they're really they're really dangerous. They're not easy to treat. Um, and uh, many times it's, they're, they're, it's these bacterial cases which – um, converting to peritonitis. It's a really dangerous condition, inflammation of the lining of the of your GI tract. Anyways, if possible, I would cook the animal food. Um, and as far as milk is concerned, I think low fat is okay. I, I never had um, success with, with the fat-free varieties. And I've tried like all kinds of organic brands. Um, I don't know if it's because there's stuff there that's added, but it's not listed on the label, which companies are allowed to do. We had a huge discussion on the forum about silica and various gums that are basically like uh, as long as they're be below a certain amount per serving, you're not supposed to be – I mean, no, you're not supposed to, but you, you, you can get away without listing them and you're still being compliance. Mm -hmm. So, But my personal experience is I never did well with the fully fat-free milk. I do fine with the with the low fat. Um, and then the, actually the full fat, my children prefer the full fat if that's any, any indication. Um, and they seem to digest it better and so do I. But I, I try to avoid it simply because it's if you drink two gallons of milk a day, there would be a significant amount of fat. Two quarts, right? Yes, two quarts. <laughs> no, I know actually. No, I'm sorry. Uh, two quarts up to a gallon is what Ray said. <laughs> so a gallon of, of whole milk is still a, a decent amount of fat, and many people would probably end up eating more things on top of that because they just think like just the diet consisting entirely of milk and oranges is just too bland. So sometimes they would they would add they would start throw throwing other things like fries. That this is like yes, and that's all. That's extra fat, right? Or like um, like a liver, 
and if you eating, I mean, liver actually has a decent amount of fat too. So, uh, anyways, yeah, I think low low fat milk is fine, um, and it should be able to rival the raw one. The raw one could be causing digestive issues because of some of the enzymes that are there. Um, they're known to to cause digestive distress to humans, but that's what the pasteurization does. It destroys all of these enzymes. Uh, so it, actually, pasteurized milk should be easier to digest, if nothing else. And also, have you had experience with UHT milk? That's like usually yeah, in the highly pasteurized. Yeah, some of yeah. that milk uh, for me digests the best. Like it's, yeah. sometimes it's uh, like when I went to the Philippines, they actually don't have fresh milk available, and so the only milk they have is that UHT stuff. But I think. Um, I know I did, but I had like a, a real bias towards that type of milk because I thought it was inferior and I'd always try to get the raw stuff. But one of the things that led me to Ray was having diarrhea with almost any kind of raw milk. And I remember reading Weston A. Price and being like, how could this be? You know, like uh, raw milk is supposed to be easily digested and I can't literally tolerate any types of raw milk. And so, um, yeah, I think... It, to piggyback on what you said, just like any type of milk that digests well and tastes good. Uh, and if a person wanted to use that as their main source of calcium, because there aren't that many options, you know, I think that would be useful. But again, it probably takes some experimentation to try different milks. Yeah. the And the, uh, so again, from personal anecdotal experience, when both of my children had colics as babies, uh-huh. basically like, uh, you know, we went to the pediatrician, she, you know, she was a nice lady, but honestly she was useless. Like, of course, she started recommending, you know, taking anti-acid drugs and things like that. So, but I, you know, I, I looked up online and and uh, there was a, there's like a, a, a homesteading community up in, up in the West Coast, I think in Oregon. And they basically were like, they had discussion because I typed like, you know, type of milk baby colics. And then this forum was like, was, you know, flooded with discussions of how UHT milk is like the least problematic milk you can give. If you want to give your child milk, which is what I wanted, uh-huh. then this is the least problematic milk you can give to like babies with sensitive digestion. And I, th- and I tried and it worked both times uh, to the dismay of the pediatrician who thought we should be giving them almond milk mm-hmm. or like or cashew milk. And then I tried it myself. Anytime I had a GI issue, like if I try regular milk, sometimes it, sometimes it would, it would go down fine. Sometimes it would make things worse. But with the UHT milk, it, it would always – you know, go through smoothly, and I never had any issues. Yeah. Um. And I tried multiple brands. So the Whole Foods has like a Parma brand, which is Italian, and it has like a Norwegian or Icelandic brand, and then it has like an American brand, and all three worked worked just fine. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we touched on this because I I think a lot of people don't even know that UHT milk exists, and so I'm glad yeah, we're there aren't ta- they're, they're, they're not very I mean not not they're not popular, but they're not very widely known. And even like in, in this wall of milk that Whole Foods has, like they're actually – they're not in the milk section. They're in the processed food section and they're right next to these soups that are in these big cartons. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's where the UHT milk is. Okay, sweet. Uh, still good on time. Uh, this one's from Lucy and Burke. They say, what do you guys think of deut- deuterium's role in physiology and deuterium depletion therapy? I've never even heard of that. Actually, deuterium, I've seen several studies lately, and somebody even asked Pete about this, about using deuterium water therapeutically. He said that he, he thinks it would work, especially for very like severe diseases. Um, but I, the studies that I have seen is that uh, they actually used PUFA, a deuterinated PUFA, and all this means is that one of the hydrogen atoms in the molecule is replaced with its heavier isotope, the deuterated isotope, 
And then this makes the PUFA really hard to metabolize. And basically, they there's studies. They're really interesting. I can send you. They're basically uh, showed like really positive effects in human studies on muscle dystrophy and Alzheimer's disease. And I don't know why nobody followed up on those. I guess not much money to be made. But um, so basically, the making the fatty acid deuterated prevents it from metabolizing. So that will, will will eliminate partially the negative effects of linoleic acid, right? And they specifically in the studies with linoleic acid. So I don't know about the deuterated. Uh, deuterium depletion therapy I, w- I know the about the exact opposite drinking deuterated water and using deuterated versions of specific nutrients like like the the polyunsaturated fats has been shown in human studies to be beneficial so that's my experience with it sweet thank you tommy says what causes burnout and why is it so long and hard to process to recover from it so talk about your dealings with me when I was burned out. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, burnout is basically uh, at this point the if you believe the official version, I think there's a decent amount of truth to it. Uh, burnout is going to get reclassified as a subclinical depression. So basically, you're getting um, you know a, a rise of serotonin can easily cause burnout, and many people get get burnout on, probably on a daily basis, especially after a stressful day. When you're coming, you know, when you're driving your car, especially if you have a long commute, and you get into this state of, of state of inui, I think it's called. Uh, that's actually like a pretty common precursor to burnout. Mm-hmm. And apparently now, one of the first questions that they do at the screening for burnout slash subclinical depression is, do you find yourself often in the situation where you stare at the wall, or like you're basically you're floating through life and you don't even realize what's happening around you, and you sit, you feel like you're simply on autopilot, like a bump on a log. That's actually every single one of these things is uh, like a, a textbook definition of what serotonin does. The, it zombifies you. You you basically you're, you're this mechanical creature that 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 floats through life, and you almost feel like you're not even in charge of your own of your own actions or your, or your thoughts or or, or feeling even feelings if you even have them. Um, so um, the and interestingly enough, they did they did some some preliminary experiments and SSRI drugs do not help. Which which coincides well with their proserotonergic effects, but drugs like tyaneptine and mianserin, which are anti-serotonergic, they have been used successfully for treating burnout. And in fact, tyaneptine to this day is approved in um, in uh, in Europe in some European countries, where actually even the state of inui is considered chronic inui is considered a disease. So I don't know. I mean, so they don't have the concept of burnout. They don't call it burnout, but they do call it chronic inui. And tyaneptine is approved for treating that. So again, my summary is that it's there's serious evidence that excess serotonin is involved, and anything that opposes that should be should be therapeutically helpful. Unlike regular clinical depression, which seems to be more related to excess cortisol. Sweet, uh, Christo- Christoph Rice. Uh, Ricefelder says, hi, in the last video, you said that the longer the refract- refractory period, the less healthy you are as a man. Yeah. What can you do to remedy this issue? Well, usually it's due to elevated prolactin. I mean, um, and and really depends on. Um, so so again, if there is no organic pathology, such as something wrong with the pituitary gland overproducing prolactin, then the second best reason actually and or kidneys. Sometimes you can have elevated prolactin. So first first clinical reason could be most common is issue with the pituitary gland. Second, two most common are issue with the liver function or issue with kidney function. Both of these are associated. with with subclinical hyperprolactinemia. Um, and all, if all of these are ruled out, 
and of course they are related with the four cause, which I'm going to mention. Then of course thyroid dysfunction would be what I would consider because it has been shown that even a minute drop in T3 in the blood immediately leads to elevation of prolactin. And in fact, before the dopamine agonists were invented, uh, hyperprolactinemia and gynecomastia were actually treatable with T3 therapy. Um, so, so again, uh, depending on how high hyperlactin is, you know, I would measure it. If it's below 50, it's most likely functional, which means thyroid-related, metabolism-related, chronic stress-related. Many people don't know, but cr- prolactin is actually, um, in medical textbooks, is listed as both a, an acute and chronic stress biomarker. It's much more reliable than cortisol uh, for that because cortisol really has very, you know, it can jump up and down very quickly. Um, but prolactin is much more reliable. So if it's below 50, it's usually due to a combination of stress and or low thyroid function. And of course, in, when you have, whenever you have these, you can still have the liver slash kidney dysfunction as a result of that. So I wouldn't necessarily exclude thyroid just because your liver enzymes are elevated or, or you know, your creatinine is elevated. It could still be due ultimately to to low metabolism. So, um, you know, vitamin E, aspirin, progesterone, all of these things help systemically. Vitamin D also helps specifically for prolactin. Um, and uh, you know, calcium. If you if you're not ingesting enough, then vitamin D would not be very helpful. So that it's important to have at least, in my experience, at least one gram of calcium. They raise says at least two. So maybe you can meet somewhere in between. It should be good enough. I think he like said 1,500 one time to somebody. Oh, 1,500. So, okay. Yeah. All right. So he's, he has lower. He's, <laughs> he's lower bound. Well, I am, I'm a, he's usually said two, but one time I heard I, he said 15. So, but yeah. I, for himself, he says like 3,000. So yeah. Yeah. And the Maasai do 5,000. So yeah. Five or I think one paper I have on the Maasai says 7,000. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's five ridiculous. to seven. Okay, uh, Kirk says, uh, thank you for that, George. Kirk says, what are your thoughts on casein? Does it have too much tryptophan? No, I think casein is a great protein. It has really, uh, it's, a, it's unique among the, the complex proteins. Is that has a, it has a, a still as of yet unexplained, but you know, I'll give some of the ideas of where it's coming from, profound anti-stress effect. Um, and basically certain studies found that casein acts on the opioid receptors in the brain. There are multiple ones, but and then it, uh, it seems to be a mixed agonist antagonist, but its overall effect seems to be similar to the drug naltrexone, so which is really interesting. So you're basically getting an anti-opioid, anti-endorphin effect, and that's really like a powerful anti-stress mechanism. Uh, many people think, oh, why I want to get my endorphins? No, the endorphins are the endogenous painkiller that your body releases when when it's in low helpless, when it thinks you cannot get out of it, right? So it, it might as well protect you from the pain. Um, but casein is opposes that whole system, and also it's known if it's if it's a decent quality protein, it's known to actually lower serotonin. So it's not just the the amount of tryptophan that's there; it's the combination of the amino acids and what the resulting how the body will respond to that flood of amino acids. So if if basically um, like uh, it, there's enough branch chain amino acids, phenylalanine and tyrosine, then most of the tryptophan will not reach the brain. So most of the tryptophan will be incorporated and or excreted. Um, and casein actually is also unique among the proteins is that it has been shown to actually increase the urinary excretion of unchanged tryptophan. So something about casein prevents tryptophan from getting properly utilized once, once inside the body. Unlike whey, you know, and, and, and then if you, of course, if you add a little bit of gelatin, the dead effect becomes even more pronounced, the beneficial effect. So... I have nothing except good things to, to say about casein. I think it's a very underrated protein. 
used to be all the rage in bodybuilding circles, circles in the 80s and early 90s. And then they basically discovered it. Well, I shouldn't say discovered. They decided it's better to uh, to eat like a more synthetically derived versions. Um, and they 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 basically they believed the, they drank the Kool Aid and believed the um, the industrial complex, which said that whey is the way to go because you get like a much quicker hypertrophy from from whey. Which uh, it, it may be true, but it's in a bad way. You, so basically, you're getting this proliferative effect of the muscle. And you're absorbing a lot more water because casein, casein is so insulinogenic. I'm sorry, the weight. Casein is a lot less so. And and anything you can, anything that you eat that doesn't stimulate as much the you know insulin response and then the glucose crash and the cortisol you know um, response to that, it's probably a good food. Whey is, is the exact opposite. Sweet, uh, John. Uh, and well, how are you doing on time, Georgie? Uh, it's eleven twenty-two. We're fine, I guess. Okay. I don't know. Because <laughs> we're at two hours twenty minutes, but uh, I I know we tried to keep things <laughs> on the lower end, but I, yeah, we're yeah. almost done with questions. So I think we'll. And I'm not falling asleep, so uh, I, I guess we'll just keep going. Um. Yeah. Okay. John Estrada says I've seen a post on the forum about potentially curing slash treating HIV AIDS. Do you know of anything that could actually cure HIV? So what, what is your perspective on that? The two studies that I posted that I remember, which is several studies. One of them was that serotonin antagonist drugs can stop AIDS in its track, HIV. Um, and it, also Ebola uh, and the Zika virus. So, And one of the studies was really like broad in its, in its conclusions. It said that it looks like the, the whole process of viral replication and, and, and infection depends on the serotonin system, depends on the serotonin receptors. And blocking those can, can greatly inhibit the whole, the whole basically like, or if, if not prevent the infection, at the very least prevent a, like a full-blown response sickness developing in the host. Um, and then the, there, there were several other studies showing that if you block the endotoxin response, if you block the TLR receptor fully, HIV can never convert into AIDS. It just remains a dormant, largely benign infection and the animal models in which it was studied they lived as long as the animal models without without being infected with hiv so something about endotoxin and the whole uh, idea of compromised immunity in which serotonin is heavily involved it's a known as perhaps the most potent immunosuppressor after cortisol maybe that's what the that's what allows the whole viral infection to take hold you know flu can be extremely dangerous many people think that you know, HIV is horrible and flu is just, a, you know, such a much more mild version and nothing to be feared of. Um, that's not true. You can actually, uh, a, a person in a severely compromised compromised health state can actually bleed their, their in, uh, it can bleed to death just by having a very severe case, case of the flu. And uh, the final stages will be indistinguishable from something like Ebola. Now, Ebola is presented as this, you know, uh, hemorrhaging virus, but the flu can cause the exact same things in a, in a susceptible person. So the whole, so the, it looks like so far the evidence points towards that HIV in healthy people is really not that dangerous, and you can protect yourself and it, at the very least prevent the this, the disease called AIDS, which is the lethal stage stage of it, by handling endotoxin and handling serotonin. Yeah, I f- I feel like we could do a whole two hours on this, so maybe we should yeah. do a, an immunity uh, or talk about immunity more. Not that we didn't do that podcast on it, but. Yeah, they're a huge subject. And there's lots of kind of uh, bizarre information about autoimmune diseases, just like they're mysterious. They come and then you have to eat a specialized diet because you have a autoimmune, a mysterious autoimmune problem. And so, uh, 
Yeah, we should probably follow up on that when we have more time. Okay, Dan says, wondering if you guys had any thoughts on coriander powdered seeds to reduce iron levels in the body. Uh, I'm aware of vitamin E aspirin blood donation, but was looking at coriander as an alternative. Um, I don't know much about coriander, but how about something like a doxy or tetracycline, which are known to be such powerful iron chelators? They can drop ferritin by about 40% in just a week. Really? I didn't know that. To the point where now they're actually being proposed of classified separately as non, what do they call them? Non-directly chelating um, anti-iron overload agents or whatever like the specific term was. He had doxycycline specifically. And several people on the forum actually reported by taking even 50 milligrams doxycycline, they noticed that their ferritin levels dropped so much they stopped donating blood. They actually, doctor turned him away and said, like, you, don't, you can't give blood. You, you, you're close to like, becoming deficient. Did they happen to get their iron saturation? Because I'm still Everything. kind of confused at what is a good indic- indicator of iron in the body. Well, when you actually, when you, before you go and give blood, they actually are smart enough and they usually do the full iron panel. They don't just do serum iron. In the They're, U.S.? Yeah, in the U.S. Like really? I've, I've never had that done, and I've gone to multiple places in San Francisco. So it depends on the clinic. Like basically, like if you go in there, so you know, some clinics will basically like say, "We'll check your insurance," and you can they, they have a they have a deal with the insurance company where the insurance company will actually cover for the tests. Uh-huh. So if the test will be covered, then the clinic will actually test you for everything there because uh-huh. they, they you know of course AIDS, but many other things, right? Uh-huh. It really depends on money, like how much you're willing to pay, how much they're covering. Because in order to entice you to go there and donate blood, a lot of them will say, well, it's, it's, we'll do the test for free, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're free, then they'll limit themselves to the minimum that the law requires. But if you go to like a really large drive and you have a decent insurance, mm-hmm. then they'll actually test you for everything. Mm-hmm. Of course, why wouldn't they, right? It limits the risk for them. Um, and they will usually I've seen that, uh, so then they don't do like the full iron panel, but they do iron saturation and things. They do ferritin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they do serum iron. Mm-hmm. And I know several people who have been turned away from, from blood donor events because they, you know, and, and they all they were taking doxycycline specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think all the tetracyclines have this effect, but doxycycline specifically. And they weren't taking that much. And it was just in, for like a week, and their iron numbers dropped, dropped tremendously. There is even a study that proposes that the anti-cancer effect of doxycycline even though we know it's 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 a quinone, et cetera, et cetera, it may actually be because it chelates it chelates iron. Mm-hmm. If you go to PubMed and type iron chelation cancer, mm-hmm. that's like one of the hottest therapies right now for for any cancer. It's it's considered like a universal universal mechanism for for treating cancer that uh, against which the cancer can mount no defense no defensive response. Uh, I hate to drag this out. Do you, do you remember Ray, Ray saying that donating microspheres or whatever was one of the new things he was thinking about, or what? What are these microspheres? I don't. I don't know. It was just like somebody asked him about blood donation and a KMUD thing, and then he brought up microspheres. I don't even. I never followed up on it. I don't. I don't even know. Did, I have to listen to the interview. I I haven't heard of it, but it, it it sounds pretty interesting. Okay. But if you, if there is a very known iron chelator called desferoxamine, uh-huh. type you, you don't have to go go to PubMed. Type in Google desferoxamine space cancer you will be flooded. Like it's basically now they're trying to patent this drug again because it's such an old drug. It was like invented in the 1920s, I think. And now they're like running around in circles trying to figure out a way to patent it again because so far they've tried on like 40 different cancer types. It works on all of them. Just type in Google desferoxamine cancer, you'll see. Okay, we'll have to do it a little later. Okay, Sandy Perez Sanchez asked this question and I have to apologize to Sandy because she had left this actually on like two live streams ago, but I never, uh, I just, 
I'll, I'll take the questions and then I'll stitch them together. But sometimes if you leave a question after the fact, I won't, I won't get to it. So apologies to Sandy. Um, but thank you for the question. She says for the past two years, two plus years, I've been trying to eradicate what I think is H pylori plus SIBO, maybe an ulcer too, but the symptoms keep coming back after a, after short lived relief. I tried diet supplements, herbs for H pylori and SIBO, uh, pepsid, charcoal, ciproheptidine, lizuride, tetracycline with and without erythromycin and methylene blue plus red light. Uh, she said, left me feeling terrible for days. It's still not completely gone and large amounts of T3, uh, 12.5 micrograms times six times per day seems to not work. Any advice on the direction uh, would be appreciated since it's ruining my life. Thanks, Georgie and Danny. I, I mean, how basically how does the person how does Sandy know that it, she that she has an H. pylori? I mean, there, there's a pretty pretty reliable blood test which can catch it, um, they, and they also do like a breath test as a confirmation to that as well. Any doctor's office should be able to do both of these tests. So, um, if it is confirmed, then there are approved antibiotics and blanking on them right now, but I think erythromycin is one of them, but they usually they, they, they give a cocktail. Clarithromycin, amoxicillin, penicillin yeah. VK are, the, I think, the usually the ones. And so, they usually give a combination to, to but but at first I would confirm that it's H. pylori. Um, if if it is an ulcer, then then these antibiotics could be making it worse because some of them could be really irritating and basically if you have an ulcer, depending on what's, what the cause, so if it's not, so if you have an ulcer, but it's not, if you have H. pylori, then the course of action is clear. There, there's a specific antibiotic protocol that you have several of them. I would try to stick to that until the, the, the tests come back clear. Um, if they, they can also do like a, I think like a breath test for, for ulcer at this point as well. So if, if there is a suspicion of ulcer, but there is no H. pylori, then I wouldn't mess with the antibiotics right now. Um, they also, they can do a blood, uh, a breath test for SIBO. So if there is, if there is no ulcer, but SIBO, then there is a, there is a proved antibiotic. It's called rifaximin. Um, you can, you know, the, the doctor can prescribe it. And I, I think at this point it is actually the approved treatment for SIBO, even though FDA doesn't recognize it, it, it does, um, it has approved it for, in, for, um, what did you call it? Uh, indige- or functional dyspepsia and indigestion of unknown etiology. So that will be the way to go. And if there is ulcer, but no SIBO and no H. pylori, then I wouldn't mess with the antibiotics for now because some of them can be pretty irritating and it can actually be making the ulcer worse. So for that, I would strictly focus on the Pepsid uh, for maybe like a week or two. Um, 20 to 40 milligrams should be enough to make a difference. Um, and then I would do the, you know, uh, like a, a few additional tests. I mean, um, you can actually test for like inflammatory conditions in the GI tract. I think the you can take tests for procalcitonin is a very common one um, to see if there's anything like you know resembling like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. At this point, there are bio, there there are biomarkers for those. Procalcitonin is one of them, and I will do the you know just the the battery of inflammatory biomarkers we'll be talking about on the forum like erythrocyte sedimentation rate, um, LDH, uh, TNF alpha, NFKB. Uh, just just to get like a general direction on you know where this this problem is coming from. Of course, goes without saying testing for thyroid, vitamin D, all of these things like prolactin, cortisol. Typically, if, if a person has a chronic condition, in my experience, prolactin is always abnormal, always. Uh, sometimes cortisol, but usually usually there's an endocrine imbalance that goes 
that goes together with that with that chronic dysfunction. And often it is a cause as much as it is an effect as well. But uh, I would I would do the regular tests for for you know prolactin cortisol vitamin D um, DHEA is a great one especially for women. Um, and then um, so I mentioned the vitamin D I mentioned the cortisol. I would also do the inflammatory biomarkers, a complete blood count, CBC, and liver panel. Um, sometimes it's a liver issue, but it feels like it's a stomach issue because they're they're in the same area. Could be a glow a gallbladder issue as well. Um, so some so the liver panel should be able to tell if it's coming from that area. Hundred percent agree, and especially the vitamin D. I think that can uh, mimic or cause a lot of those symptoms that she's talking about. Especially like thinking you have a chronic infection, but. Or maybe you do, but you have it's it's the symptoms are caused by vitamin D deficiency. Vitamin D, and sometimes liver dysfunction is actually can be caused directly by vitamin D deficiency. And uh, it's not a coincidence that, that there's a boom in it's, there's an epidemic ra- right now of NAFLD, the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and it coincides perfectly with a dropping vitamin D levels on average. And there are multiple studies with humans. They're still epidemiological, but they're showing that. Basically, uh, it's almost it's very rare for a person with with vitamin D levels above forty to have an NAFLD. That's interesting. I have to get that paper from you. Steph says since this is her field, basically, she says H. pylori or maybe uh, Campylobacter. Campylobacter. Yeah, Campylobacter. Yeah. And uh, I have at least one reference that says uh, like the patients that responded to the triple therapy for H. pylori. The ones that had sufficient vitamin D levels were the ones that responded best. And so that's kind of another factor. Like maybe you're taking the perfect combination of antibiotics or whatever, but your vitamin D is low and you just, uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't, doesn't work. In many cases, maybe usually, the, uh, well, I should say many cases, but like there is an older study which showed that in, in people with endocrine imbalances, that's what caused the chronic infection to develop to start with. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually H. pylori, H. pylori is an opportunistic uh, I don't want to call it a parasite because we have a symbiotic relationship with it, but H. pylori is known to take hold in people who are either under chronic stress, like uh, it was very, it was known, it was known to happen to increase tremendously in people coming back from war. So that shows you something. Like especially people with PTSD, it's very common to have to, for them to have ulcers, especially ones caused by H. pylori. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I totally uh, concur with those tests. Like, don't don't throw another supplement in. Just maybe she has, we don't know. But like, getting as many tests as possible, just because you don't want to just be spinning your wheels, basically. Okay, Daniel says, is the calcium to phosphate? We have a few more questions. Is the calcium to phosphate ratio more important than the absolute phosphate intake? The emphasis on dairy seems to be beneficial in the former case, but rather detrimental in the latter since it contains a lot of phosphate. Did we ask this question? We, we answered this question last time. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I thought we did. It was the exact same question. I remember we talked about it and we, we said <laughs> it is about the ratio. Okay, Daniel actually has another question. Daniel, I'm, yeah, I'm positive we answered that question. Okay, and just because we're crunched for time here. Uh, Daniel has another question, uh, but he says, how can supplemental pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA increase their endogenous production since most literature talks about suppression of endogenous steroid production with exogenous intake? Uh, well, it's been shown that specifically the, the, the upstream hormones, and that's why they're unique. So uh, DHEA actually can suppress its own production if you take a high enough dosage and it converts to estrogen. In that case, yes, because estrogen is very well known as to trigger the negative feedback. Then, then you will have like basically uh, like a like a uh, a decline of the entire steroidogenic cascade, except the one going towards cortisol. That's what estrogen does. It really estrogen can actually cause the notorious pregnenolone steal. 
Um, if you have high estrogen, you will be getting the high cortisol, but not much going down the you know the androgen pathway. Uh, but however, progesterone and pregnenolone, um, I'm not aware of any studies that show that these two hormones suppress their own synthesis. Um, uh, and and uh, you know uh, one of the one of the ways through which they probably stimulate their own synthesis is that both of these hormones activate something called the bile acid receptor, mm-hmm. and the bile acid receptor is one of the primary mechanisms through which the body uh, uh, basically signals the liver to start converting T4 into T3. Um, so in other words, it's the primary mechanism endogenous through which the body upregulates its own metabolism, the baseline, the baseline metabolic rate, the resting metabolic rate. So all of these steroids, so um, pregnenolone, progesterone, allopregnanolone, and I think to a lesser degree testosterone all stimulate this receptor. So they all result in a higher metabolism. Anything that stimulates the synthesis of T3 will increase the conversion of cholesterol into that into downstream hormones. Some of it will get con- some of it will get converted. Some of the cholesterol will get converted to bile acids, not necessarily steroids. But at the very least, it's known that pregnenolone, progesterone, all the steroids that activate the bile receptor do not inhibit their own synthesis. Um, and then for pre- pregnenolone and progesterone, there is actually evidence that they lower cholesterol. And since they don't increase the bile acid synthesis, the only the only two other pathways through through which cholesterol can go is vitamin D or the steroids themselves. Um, and and I think some of the studies that were done recently with schizophrenia, uh, with the really massive doses of pregnenolone, 500 milligrams daily, well, I shouldn't say massive, but f- fairly large, they actually specifically looked at the different steroid levels and also of the expression of the this protein called STAR. Uh, acute steroid steroid regulatory uh, steroid acute regulatory protein, which is what transports the the cholesterol from from basically the, from the cytosol inside the mitochondria to start the whole chain of of synthesis. And they actually not only they didn't, they didn't see suppression of any steroids, they actually saw an, an increase in the expression of star. So that's a pretty serious indication that these that pregnenolone specifically in those very high doses actually stimulated the synthesis of cholesterol into downstream hormones. Four more questions. Uh, thanks for that, Georgie. Uh, George Hilgendorf says, the keto advocates are always saying the brain, heart, etc. prefer ketones to glucose. Where do they get this idea? Have either of you seen any evidence where they might have gotten this idea from, or did they just make it up? <laughs> no, they didn't make it up. Actually, they partially made it up, and they didn't clarify it. So actually, <laughs> muscles prefer ketones at rest. So first of all, it depends whether you're at rest or you're exerting yourself. Second, I don't. I haven't seen the evidence that the brain prefers ketones. The mm-hmm. brain can use ketones when it's an emergency situation, uh, but the brain actually, uh, you know, brain itself prefers glucose. And there actually, there's even like a special. There's there's like a subset of of, of medical professionals who actually don't even believe that the brain can use ketones. Mm-hmm. They they think that the brain has an uh, has access to an as of yet unidentified source of glucose. And even though the ketones are circulating, the brain dramatically de- like downregulates its own activity in order to conserve that glucose. Mm-hmm. And that's what's been known to happen when the brain gets access to ketones. Mm-hmm. So if the ketones are such, were such a great food for the brain, if anything, the brain metabolism shouldn't decline. It should increase when, you, when you're providing with ketones. The fact that the brain metabolism and brain function is, is de- declines by about 20% demonstrates that the ketones – are not necessarily preferred food or that the brain maybe is basically perceiving this lack of glucose 
as a reason to downregulate its own effects. As far as the muscles go, yes, under rest, they do prefer to burn fat. But as soon as you start overexerting yourself, in other words, anything more than a 10-second run, then the, then the preference switches, and then the, then the muscles really prefer to utilize glucose. Hence, why drugs that inhibit fatty acid metabolism, such as mildronate, are such effective performance enhancers when under exertion. Mm-hmm. When, you, when you're at rest, actually, mildronate has been shown that when you're at rest and you're relatively healthy, mildronate doesn't have a long-term beneficial effect, not, not that much in terms of preventing diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and all. But if you're under stress, if you're an athlete or a former athlete, or you already have established pathology like a cardiovascular disease, which is all related to elevated free fatty acids, elevated uh, fatty acid oxidation, and suppressed glucose, the mildrenate becomes dramatically beneficial. So, and recently, we also showed in that study, which we discussed on the last podcast, that increasing fatty acid oxidation does not lead to late weight loss. And that study, in the previous one that we also discussed, is that it leads to liver insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So these things are indisputable. Like if you flood the, the, blood, the bloodstream with fat, there are no negative things that happen to multiple organs. I don't know if the brain is one of them. Maybe not. Maybe yes. But, but we know it, bad things are happening to the liver, and we know bad things are happening to the heart. Hence why mildrenate helps when, when basically the situation is such that the muscle prefers glucose, but it gets fat instead. Um, and I think actually I would modify this because I think if the fat that, that floods the, the blood is mostly PUFA, then I don't think your muscles are very happy that you're providing them with this fat even at rest. I think they're struggling because some of that fat will get converted to an inflammatory mediators, and it's not beneficial. So under a chronic low-grade inflammatory stress, your muscles are not going to be very happy even if they're at rest. Mm-hmm. So limiting limiting the fatty acid oxidation will probably be beneficial even at rest in that situation. And again, something that never comes up when this topic is discussed is that ketone body ratio of acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate. And again, I don't think it's... I don't think it's commonly, uh, maybe I think it's, you'd be a better, you know, this better than I would, but that NAD to NADH is slowly becoming more popular. Like I think Chris Masterjohn and a Dr. Rhonda Patrick both talk about NAD and the, the, when you release ketones, like the, um, the beta hydroxybutyrate is uh, higher or a great, a greater ratio than the acetoacetate. And that indicates well, that's a, the- that's a test for diabetes, by the way. I don't know if you knew. It's one of the, one of the older tests for diabetes type two was the ratio of three beta hydroxybutyrate over acetoacetate. Well, so well, because well, that's the reduced, so it's another biomarker for for the redox status, right? Exactly. That's what I was yeah. getting to. But why is the, well? A question popped in my head. Why is the beta hydroxybutyrate higher than the acetoacetate? Well, that it depends how quickly, basically, uh, basically whether you're metabolizing the ketones or you're not. Okay. So if you're not, the ketones actually become an emergency oxidizing agent, and they get turned, the acetoacetate gets converted to 3-beta-hydroxybutyrate. Mm-hmm. So you basically, if you're in a reductive state, the ketones are used as emergency oxidants, okay. and, then, and then you become basically like, as a result of this, because they use as emergency oxidants, almost like the pyruvate lactate, right? Mm-hmm. So the ratio will shift towards the reduction because the body will needs the NAD at all costs, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if you don't have glucose, if you're not eating glucose, then basically, like the the the, uh, the NADH has to be oxidized somehow, right? 
And then when you're eating glucose, the emergency oxidant is pyruvate. So you, you reoxidize NADH back into NAD by pyruvate and you generate lactate. Mm-hmm. But it only, that only happens if, you, if you're eating glucose. If you're not eating glucose, if the blood levels of glucose drop to a certain level, then you need another emergency oxidant, and that is the ketone bodies. So you, you basically you turn yourself into a temporarily diabetic just to keep the NAD thing going. It's really not a good state to be in. But just so I have it clear, you're saying that acetoacetate acts as an electron acceptor in stress? Yes. Okay, I didn't know that. And, and, well, I mean, it can get it, it gets so three beta hydroxybutyrate. So acetoacetate is the oxidized version of three beta hydroxybutyrate. Okay. And conversely, three beta three beta hydroxybutyrate uh, okay. is the reduced version of, okay. of basically of, of acetoacetate. Okay. And unlike NAD and NADH, right? These three can actually act as reducing and oxidizing agents. Mm-hmm. So so basically. I've, I mean, I've seen st- papers that say that if you are in a compromised state, this ketogenic diet, these ketone bodies can actually really do you harm. Mm-hmm. They can actually trigger a temporarily diabetic state mm-hmm. uh, because your metabolism is compromised and those ketone bodies will be used somehow, right, to keep the NAD going. NAD you need no matter whether you're metabolizing glucose or fat. Mm-hmm. And if metabolism is not going fast enough to reoxidize that NADH through the electron transport chain mm-hmm. and the Krebs cycle, mm-hmm. Then something else has got to give, and that something is whatever you provided in the diet that can act as an oxidizing agent. Sweet, thanks for that. I didn't know that. Um, okay, four more questions. Uh, uh, no, yeah, no, three more. Mark says, "What do you think of this idea uh, for non-smokers to apply a nicotine patch to get their metabolisms up? Uh, anything wrong with this? Any risk of addiction? Other topic. What is your opinion about butan butanidia?" Uh, a succinic acid, aka succinic acid, as a supplement. If you yeah. approve, would you have any dosage recommendation? So, butanediol so, is just another name for succinic acid. Yeah. Um, so, a couple of things. I wouldn't use nicotine long term. I think nicotine has some great advantages short term. It, it is an aromatase inhibitor, it's a monoamine oxidase type B inhibitor. So, in other words, it will lower estrogen, it may increase, it, it will decrease the degradation of dopamine, right? But it also releases free fatty acids, and it's pretty effective at that. And it has a potent pro-adrenergic effect and is also like basically acts as an agonist of the acetylcholine receptors. So this in the long run actually has really detrimental effects uh, and they outweigh the positive ones. Um, And ironically, actually, um, despite the fact that smoking cigarettes has other more more dangerous – so overall, cigarette is ironically like 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 a stronger carcinogen. But systemically for the health is better in the sense that it has additional components there that, that mitigate somewhat the negative effects of nicotine. Um, so, But if you're only using nicotine, it's not as carcinogenic. But I think over time, it really targets the brain and the elevated free fatty acids. It basically raises your metabolism in a bad way. It, it mimics exhaustive exercise. You're going to get the same adrenergic slash cortisol response if you run for like, I don't know, 5, 6, 10 miles. Um, and that's what that's what that's what uh, nicotine on its own does. When you're smoking in a cigarette, there's some things there that would negate these effects. But then, of course, cigarettes are carcinogenic. So nicotine on its own, one at most two milligrams daily, like as a, as a gum or a patch, um, it may have a decent effect. But I wouldn't use it to raise my meta- metabolism with it. It's not a. You might as well use use caffeine. Actually, and it's not a coincidence that many people that smoke use coffee as well. Because caffeine is actually a cholinergic antagonist. So it actually can negate some of those bad effects. But caffeine and nicotine together 
sometimes may result in excessive lipolysis um, in, a, in a person with compromised health can be really dangerous. I've seen people with type 2 diabetes who have like a cigarette and, a, and an espresso and then they start trembling and shaking and then they actually have to get, get something sweet because their free fatty acids uh, went up too, too high. Thank you for that. Alp says, I think I have a compart compartment syndrome in my calf. I definitely exerted it too much as a few months ago. After walking a lot or a while after exercising, my calf feels numb, uh, like it has a lack of circulation inside. This is likely quite deep, so would topical progesterone help? I have most of the ID Labs products, and I'm in otherwise good condition. Um, if the issue is persistent and is going on for so long, I would actually ask a doctor to do an ultrasound. Uh, sometimes you can have like a muscle tear or muscle sprain um, or like, God forbid, like, you know, um, some kind of a blockage in a blood vessel. Um, and all of these things can be identified by the ultrasound. So before, I mean, you can, you can probably try the progesterone. It shouldn't hurt no matter what the issue is. But if it's persistent for so long, I would get a, try to get an ultrasound. It's, it's safe and, and most doctors usually don't have a problem ordering one for, for an issue that's been persisting for weeks. Uh, sweet. I lied. I, we, uh, we actually have two more questions. Okay. Linda says, sorry. Uh, no, uh, <laughs> she says, my husband is 70 and his testosterone is low. Yeah. Uh, the free testosterone is 5.0 from a range of 6.0 to 18.1. His serum testosterone is 329. Uh, suggestions for raising without supplementing or if supplementing, how would y'all suggest doing it? Creams, pellets, injections, any dosage. Uh, so what, what's the best way to go about this, asks Linda. So in my experience, depending on how, um, how healthy the person is, actually a little bit of pregnenolone and DHEA in combination with some aspirin, um, it can actually really help. Uh, recent studies found that uh, NSAID drugs, non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs, have a profound anabolic effect in the elderly. And uh, up until like a year or two ago, they didn't, they didn't know why. And then it turns out that with age, the expression of the enzyme COX, which synthesizes the, the, the inflammatory mediators from PUFA, dramatically increases. So, and it, so apparently this inflammation is one of the major breaks on testosterone synthesis in the elderly. There is no damage in the lytic cells. There is no damage in the basically in the whole cycle, stimulating from the pituitary, et cetera, et cetera. Usually, right, if the person is, that's what I'm saying, if the person is healthy. And if that's the case... Sometimes aspirin is really helpful because, first of all, it's a COX inhibitor. Second of all, it inhibits the en enzyme that synthesizes cortisol. And cortisol, which tends to either stay, uh, basically never decline with age or sometimes even rise, is another steroid that, that, that uh, impedes the synthesis of testosterone in the gonads. So providing the precursors, pregnenolone and DHA, maybe 5 milligrams of each would be enough on a daily basis. A little aspirin uh, should help. And then uh, if I would retest after about a month or two months. Uh, Ray, who is now 81 or 82? Eight, 80, maybe 83 this October. Oh, 83 this October, yes. 1936 so, when he was born? Right. So uh, I think he said that several people asked him what he does for that. And he says um, he used to use like a progesterone DHEA. But uh, he now basically every once in a while, like two or three times a week, he adds a little bit of testosterone dissolved in vitamin E and, 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 uh, and fat. And they asked him how much. And he said basically another person who was in his 70s, I had to ask Ray, for, for very similar reasons. He said, I'm hypogonad not hypogonad, but my, my, my total testosterone is low. 
And Ray said, like, uh, basically, like, uh, anything more than five milligrams of testosterone daily raises, like, the blood clot risk because it heavily converts into estrogen in an older person. And that, he also suggested, like, pregnenolone up to 100 milligrams daily, DHEA 5 to 10 milligrams daily, aspirin also. Um, he didn't quote that study about Cox, but that's that's what I, that's my suggestion. Um, and then he also said that, uh, you know, um, uh, what was the other thing? So, so to, oh, I think he said that keeping protein intake relatively high helps shift the balance towards dopamine and against serotonin. And he says basically brain is, and I agree, brain is one of the master controllers of gonadal synthesis. And with age, because we have the increase, and I mentioned it earlier, we have basically a, a, a buildup of serotonin and a decline in the catecholamines. So in other words, the balance is shifted heavily in the, in the favor of serotonin. Eating extra protein um, is, uh, helps shift the balance towards dopamine. And if you if you don't if you don't want to do it with with protein, the uh, supplementing with gelatin in his regular meals or the brain chain amino acids, just adding a little bit to the meals, they help prevent the buildup of tryptophan in the brain. Sweet. Okay. One last Patreon question, then we'll get to the Super Chats. So if you have a Super Chat, this is the time to do it. Again, Georgie, thank you so much. We uh, totally didn't hit our two hours of streaming. <laughs> we have once again gone into the th almost three-hour mark. So we really have to try to get a handle on this. Uh, but I'm not as sleepy as I was last time, so I'm not too... It's not too bad. Okay, uh, so last question, uh, question from Patreon. Jesus Christ, Steph. Steph just uh, super chatted $62.80. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I'm speechless. Okay, thanks, Steph. Uh, I have to take her out for lunch. You know, yeah. she's, she works not far from me. <laughs> yeah, I'm so jealous, by the way. I wish I could uh, hang out with you guys. Okay, uh, this gentleman says, thank you, Danny and Georgie, for your hard work in advancing the bioenergetic view of life. You and Ray have discussed safe ways to prevent clotting disorders, uh, including aspirin and vitamin E. Uh, based on your re research, what do you think would be the best strategy for people who want to get off conventional anticoagulant drugs like warfarin? Um, so aside from these over-the-counter supplements, anything that blocks serotonin is a really powerful blood thinner. Um, and recently, cyproheptadine has been successfully used to treat a number of different clotting disorders. Um, and uh, the drug famotidine actually has, has a side effect, which I mentioned earlier. One of its common side effects is thinning the blood. So so that's a great another great over-the-counter option. Um, and then in general, um, so, so basically if you don't want to use these things, other things that, that seem to decrease the clotting would be like uh, back breathing. Carbon dioxide has a, has a very potent anti-clotting effect as well, probably through its deactivation of serotonin. It acts as a selective serotonin reuptake enhancer. In, in other words, acts opposite to the SSRI drugs. So carbon dioxide, uh, progesterone is, is another great one. Um, and many people use it progesterone dissolved in vitamin E, which tends to amplify the anti-clotting effects. But even progesterone on its own, whether it's taken orally or it's applied topically in another solvent, um, it, it itself has a very potent anti-clotting effect. Um, other than that, pregnenolone has a slight effect, uh, anti-clotting. Um, anything that blocks the endotoxin receptor, TLR4, um, is also known to act as an anti-clotting agent. So in, uh, uh, that, that suggests that in general, reducing endotoxin will probably help prevent uh, the clots from forming. 
So things like the charcoal, the carrot salad, um, and eating easily digestible foods. I've actually noticed that uh, I have a friend who is who is uh, who is type two diabetic. He weighs almost three hundred pounds, and he had he had these really like uh, visible large vein spots on his legs. Um, and um, he basically said the doctor told him, well, you're starting to develop uh, uh, phlebitis and you know like inflammation of the blood vessels. It's a common side effect of, of diabetes. Um, there's nothing really we can do for it. You have to lose weight, et cetera, et cetera. But then, um, you know, he, he asked me, and I sent him this paper about endotoxin, and he, uh, he, he got himself some ketotyphen. And ketotyphen is one of the known potent antagonists of TLR4. So he started taking two milligrams daily for, for about a month, and then all this, like his left leg was like almost entirely blue, from, like from the ankle all the way up to the thigh. And then all these things disappeared. And then, like, he went and he also got that test for endotoxin. Unfortunately, he didn't get a before and after. He only get like the, he only got the after. And then uh, it's called soluble. It's called SCD14, soluble CD14. So he did the test, and then his his level was barely below the upper range. And then after another month of ketotyphen, he went in and tested again, and he was basically at the bottom 10%. And the his right leg is now almost entirely clear. So I can actually get before and after pictures of his legs so and post them on the on the forum or like on my blog it's really amazing um, now I don't know if this is only due to endotoxin because ketotyphen is also has anti-serotonin effects antihistamine so it could be like a complex effect but it's it's basically you know it's uh, to me it's not a coincidence that his digestion improved and all of these venous problems that he had in his, his in both of his legs disappeared uh, so I'm attributing more to the endotoxin Sweet. Thanks for that. Okay, we'll get on to the Super Chats. Uh, Luke Van Dorn Dean, thank you so much, 499. He says, a friend has gone to rehab and has sobered up. He is now eating mostly PD. What is a protocol to reverse the damage from years of alcohol abuse? Um, alcohol, actually, aside from the liver and the, um, and, and the increased gut permeability, alcohol is, is probably not as dangerous as the opioids. Um, but, um, one of the, one of the two bad things that it does that tend to linger more, more long-term is that after, when you're in withdrawal, then you tend to overproduce cortisol. So uh, recovering alcoholics are known to actually have elevated cortisol. It's subclinical. So this is not, it's not really a Cushing syndrome, but it is above, usually above the upper range. And that's what's driving many of them to relapse. So, and also the cortisol itself, because it has so many other detrimental effects, it causes the insulin resistance over time, vascular calcification, cardiovascular disease, atrophies the brain. It's really like the withdrawal of the addict from the alcohol that may even be more dangerous. So, pregnenolone is, is a great way to go because in animal studies, it was shown that pregnenolone actually prevented relapse from, from uh, in alcoholic animals. Um, and the dosage was the equivalent of about 30 to 50 milligrams. Um, other things that prolactin uh, that uh, alcohol does is it elevates prolactin, uh, mostly because through its estrogenic effects. So I would try, I would measure, I would do like an endocrine panel and see how his androgens are and how prolactin is. If prolactin is above the 50th percentile of normal. Uh, then I'll try something like a progesterone, DHEA, and vitamin E combination, um, because if prolactin is doesn't doesn't uh, fall. These people are shown to, first of all, be, uh, again, at a very high risk of relapse. Um, and also, uh, one of the reasons 
alcoholics, recovering alcoholics, and even while they're drinking, they feel so um, like so down on themselves. Is that prolactin and dopamine, of course, have an inverse relationship. So, so the, his dopamine will be chronically low if prolactin is elevated, and that happens tends to happen mostly during withdrawal. And and the withdrawal, even though the friend is now sober, the withdrawal is considered to actually continue. Uh, starting from the first month after successful withdrawal, continuing all the way up to 12 months. So that person is, if it's not been 12 months yet, you know, of course there's no magic date, but for the first year afterwards, I would consider that person in withdrawal and still in recovery. So pregnenolone to, and progesterone to take care and DHA take care of the cortisol, potentially improve the endocrine balance. Um, vitamin D is important to restore liver health if there is any issue with the liver health. These three steroids I mentioned are also important. Um, and then basically things to keep prolactin low. So keeping stress low, uh, eating enough calcium, um, and basically um, upping the progesterone dosage, any sign that prolactin is starting to shoot up uh, because it's really due to the overall estrogenic environment that alcohol creates. Sweet. Thank you, Georgie. And thank you, Luke, for that super chat. Uh, thank you so much. Um, Shah, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up your name. Shah File uh, Anower for 199. Thank you so much, Shah File. I'm sure I'm butchering your name. Uh, they say, or he says, how long uh, to reverse fibrosis in the scalp? And I feel like this is something that might be uh, he might be asking as the theory of fibrosis causing pattern hair loss. But I think it has to, like, again, correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it has to be reframed that fibrosis is just a part of energy deficiency. Yeah, it's it's not like again because I think the 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 framing of this is usually that there is like fibrotic, hard, thick things inhibiting the hair growth, and that you have to break it up physically uh, in a mechanical way. And so again, I I don't know if you necessarily agree with that, but like that, uh, and I'm kind of partly responsible because I made a video about fibrosis in the hair follicle, which is a very real thing. But again, I, I, edema or inflammation or edema inflammation, and then, uh, excessive fibroblasts producing collagen. Like these are just part, this is a normal part of an energy deprived tissue, but sorry, keep your take. So as, as far as the test, how, first of all, there's a test. So if you go to your doctor and you can say, I want like a skin electric conductance test done on my scalp. <laughs> so if you want that, they'll do it. And it can, it can kind of give you an idea of how, like basically how, how bad the fibrotic slash calcification issue is there, which leads me to, I wouldn't call it a fibrotic case necessarily because the really extreme cases do have it. But the initial case, case is mostly calcification of soft tissue. Um, and, and that itself can actually be reversed by things like vitamin K and progesterone when applied topically. I don't know how long. I mean, the human studies for vascular calcification usually lasted three to six months, and they st started seeing results, statistically significant results, after the second month. Mm -hmm. Whether the same is true for the scalp, I would assume it is, un unless I hear otherwise. Okay, real key uh, thing you said, but the calcification part, you're, it's not specifically in, in regards to the scalp. Just to it's be not. It's yeah. not. I I'm just saying that. I mean, if you know, if, if you go and get the skin, the skin electric conduct conductance test, and it comes back abnormal. Then means there is a buildup of a non-conductive material there, whether that's basically plaque or whether it's becoming a, a scar tissue, a collagen, right? It's hard to say. I mean, then they have to do a biopsy if you really want to get the idea. I don't know how far how far into it you want to get. Uh, at some point, the doctor will probably – first of all, 
like I think the skin conduction test is covered by the insurance. The biopsy won't unless you have like a mole there or something. And then they, because otherwise the insurance is not going to cover it. So not many doctors are going to go and play along with this, with this, with this, I don't want to go charade. They're not going to be, <laughs> yeah, if you go there with your own ideas of what's causing baldness and, and parent hair loss and you ask for these tests, most doctors are not going to take it. But, but like the mast cells releasing their inflammatory contents and promoting fibrosis. I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not saying this is not like, this is crazy or whatever. I'm just saying that how I have framed it earlier is from my experience, usually how it's looked at. And so again, like reframing it in the trying to decrease the inflammation uh, and that reversing the, at least in the hair follicle, the fibrosis. But again, it's usually framed as something that has to be mechanically broken by doing a headstand or, or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know what he meant because his question was simply about like how long would it take to reverse. Yeah. And I'm saying like, well, first of all, let's see if it's there. Yeah. And that's one test to do it. And second of all, it, let us, let's assume it's there. Okay. Then if you want to go about this basically fibrosis, you can use anti-serotonin agents and or decalcifying agents like vitamin K and progesterone, right? Um, and remember that I posted a study, actually several of them on the forum, which showed that any any soft tissue calcification is actually driven by excess mineralocorticoid activity. And it's cortisol in when it's elevated. So uh, actually, ironically, it's not even aldosterone. Even though aldosterone is known to cause heart fibrosis, but it has to get very high. But because, the, as I explained earlier, because the type, like the mineral, mineralocorticoid and glucocorticoid, they're really one receptor, just two different types. Actually, cortisol is capable of acting as agonist on the mineralocorticoid receptor. And that's what causes the blood pressure issues and, and, and the heart attacks and like the edema of Cushing syndrome. It's because they don't have high aldosterone, they have high cortisol. So if there is soft tissue calcification in the scalp, chances are that cortisol is involved, which confirms, again, the role of the stress hormones like cortisol and prolactin into, this, into, into the whole cascade of pattern hair loss. So... If that happens, then once again, you know, uh, you know, suggest why progesterone may be helpful, DHA may be helpful, things like that. Um, but you know, uh, just as you said, ultimately it stems from an energetic dysfunction. It's simply a sign of it. Now, what whether the best way would be to fight this fibrosis versus improving metabolism and basically get allowing the cells in the scalp to get rid of this dead slash diseased hardened tissue? It depends. I mean, maybe it's best to do both, right? It's like you're hitting it from both angles. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily assume that, oh, I have fibrosis. Let me go reverse that with by attacking the fibrosis itself, and then hopefully this will resolve the issue. No, it's a result of something else, something acting higher upstream. And, and again, not to dwell too long on this, but that 2012 Garza paper talking about prostaglandin D2 being in the, the balding area, and then the mast cell accumulation of the, the so-called field or baldness field and right. uh, that being a striking feature of baldness, according to a older paper, I think released in the eighties. But okay, uh, M- Michelle, uh, I won't even try your last name. But Michelle <laughs> says thanks, guys, and a ten dollars super chat. Thank you so much. Sincerely appreciate it. Of course, Steph's uh, all star sixty two dollars and eighty cents uh, donation uh, super chat. Thank you so much. So if uh, you're already an excellent moderator and, and here are you doing these super chats. So thank you so much. I'll buy her beer. Uh, <laughs> I'll make it up with her. <laughs> uh, buy her a Hefeweizen and that'd be good. Uh, and then Cardo Chav, uh, for one ninety nine uh, says, sup, uh, 
and then says everyone at work is prescribed metformin. Yeah. Do you know what they mean? Metformin? Yeah, it's the diabetes drug. Okay. But that's just, that's just the super chat. <laughs> okay. Maybe he's asking like, you know, whether, whether it's a good thing and like, uh, you know, what we think about it. Yeah. Or uh, Cardo, uh, Cardo chat, if you're still here, you can elaborate on your question, but I don't know your thoughts on metformin. Yeah, they're not positive. I mean, uh, I know everybody's being prescribed metformin, but the way it works is actually it lowers it 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 lowers blood blood glucose, but increases the oxidation of fat, and it puts you in a metabolic acidosis. It actually increases increases the production of lactic acid, and in fact, some of the later incarnations of metformin, I think fenformin is one of them. They they have a black box warning that it can cause a little lethal lactic acid acidemia. Um, and recent study that I posted on cancer being a metabolic disease, in the study that directly used metformin to cause cancer by causing the systemic um, lactic acidosis. So not something that I will take lightly. I, I don't think it is beneficial. And by the way, taking metformin for diabetes type 2, it has been shown to not prevent any of the complications from diabetes or increase the already decreased expected lifespan of people with diabetes type 2. So at best, it's simply masking symptoms. At worst, it's actually prepping you up for like a proliferative disease. It's really not a not a benign drug, not something I would take. Aspirin would do everything metformin does and better. It's not simply for inflammation. Aspirin has many anti-diabetic effects and should be a lot less risky than metformin. 